0: It turns out that there's a lot of things in this world that I don't understand. Uh, Welcome to the program, by the way. I thought I would just jump right in to the things that I don't get. Here's a list. Geometry, Latin, classical music, fantasy football, Game of Thrones. Uh, How long is this list? Uh, It turns out it's pretty long. And it was made up by my interns who apparently think I don't understand most things. Here are more. Standing in a long line to get gelato, people who like to have conversations in loud bars, the appeal of Jimmy Fallon, and trust me when I say the list goes on and on. You get the idea. But the one thing I really don't understand is how my guest today on the program is not a household name, and by that I mean this guy is one of the best, truly one of the very best. And he should have Grammys and gold records and global fame and recognition. So more than anything else on that list, that's the one thing I truly don't understand. I'll bet you want to meet him, don't you? All right. Well, he's here. So hang on a second and you're going to meet him. I'm Alex Green and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. By the way, this is a big long episode. So if you work out while you listen to our show, you're about to get jacked. Check this out.
1: You won't last too long. What you know. What you know. What you know. Half of them. coming around. You got to be cool. What you know. What you know. Don't you know how we can? If I'm i coming back hell All the roses. Are- You know what you know I'm all the now I'm coming
0: that is the music of my guest today on the program Philip Stevenson let me tell you a little bit about Philip Stevenson All right, so Philip Stevenson has made some of my favorite albums ever. I first heard his band Carnival of Souls when I was 19, and that album, which is called Flop, is in my top 10 of all time. Stevenson is one of the most consistent, thrilling, and rousing singer-songwriters out there. And yeah, a lot of critics have compared him to Paul Westerberg or Elliott Smith. And to be fair, those comparisons are not off the mark. But let's not stop there. Stevenson is a singer-songwriter of breathtaking talent. His compositions range from snarling rockers to ragged waltzes. And like a great painter, each of his numbers have texture and nuance that unfold layer after layer with each repeated listen. A few biographical details, okay? Stevenson played in Quinine after Carnival of Souls broke up, and after that band called it a day, he started putting out staggeringly great solo albums, one after the other. From Starless to Azalea, Stevenson's work aches with longing, rings with precision, and shines with night-kissed melodies and soaring choruses. His new three-disc set, A Complete History of Dreams, is a powerful triptych featuring windswept numbers like High for the Weekend, fuzzy rockers like Rachel I'm Sorry About Your Eyes, And the endlessly lovely Everybody's an Ocean, which will make you feel like being lost at sea, is about the most beautiful thing the world can offer. Of his new album, Stevenson says, the last few years for everyone were like a bad dream. We all had to turn them into art in order to adore them. Look, I adore everything this guy's ever done, and I'm so excited for you to meet him. So here we go, me and Philip Stevenson having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. a night guy
2: oh yeah yeah i've always been um i used to stay up you know and paint when i wanted to be an artist when i was a kid like after and i would that's why i would always be exhausted for school
0: so for me it started like my junior year of high school i was like i never want to go to sleep how
2: (laughs) how how early was it for you i don't know pretty early um do you have a lot of brothers and sisters no no because I have four and um, I think also maybe just the being able to be alone without disturbance, you know, was a nighttime thing, but I get on that rhythm anyway. I get on the nighttime schedule left to my own devices. Um, I, and I haven't had what they used to call a square job. Right. (laughs) You know, since I was in my twenties. So there we go.
0: Yeah. Because I, I'm kind of a four in the morning guy. Yeah, yeah. Does that sound familiar? Sure. Um, But then there's also that thing where, because you and I are around the same age, so there's also that thing where it's like, it's not attractive to get up at one in the afternoon. So like, (laughs) like what time do you get up now?
2: Well, I try to get up 10 or 11 and go to bed for between four and six. Uh, If the sun's already up, I start to feel a little bit like a sociopath, right? You know, so I, I try to, I, I want it to be dark, but otherwise I don't care.
0: Yeah, man, you and I are so alike. I was talking to this girl yesterday and she said to me, um, well, you stay up so late. I said, yeah. And she goes, don't you like to see the sunrise? And I go, no, (laughs) (laughs) I don't actually, I just, I just sort of assume it'll be there, but I don't really need to watch it rise. Are you
2: back to some kind of regular work schedule?
0: I mean, I teach college, so I right. you know, I have eight AM classes. So those twice yeah. a week, I'm really testing, you know, I'm testing myself I shouldn't go to school with three and a half hours of sleep. But I do well, it. Well,
2: anyway. you know, my, my girlfriend's an English professor in New York, and uh same thing, you know, up all night and then it, she got that one weird early class, you know, has to right. basically not go
0: to sleep for. <laughs> so did you find did you find a, a girl who stays up as late as you? I did. Although needs more sleep than me
2: though. That's that's a little different <laughs> thing. Mm. Stays up late, but has to sleep late. Uh, she's not good on, I can do a many days on a couple hours of sleep, but not her. She has to make it up, you know?
0: So, you know, I always, cause I'm a writer. Like I will do that thing where, where I sort of have the narrative I tell people is that I'm up late writing but that's not always really true it's seldom true i don't know what i'm doing w- what are you doing <laughs> Just having to well, carry on. you know i i
2: sometimes have work for people um i do stuff with my girlfriend watch a movie or something um i tend to do writing at night and then more mechanical stuff like recording in the daytime partially that's a noise issue i used to have a proper recording studio which was soundproof so it didn't really matter But now that I don't, I can't exactly be making that much noise in the middle of the night. So I kind of split it up. Um, But, you know, I try to do something creative (laughs) uh, so I enjoy my time off because I don't have usually enough regular work to, you know, sometimes I do, but uh, if I've got regular work. It's like mixing or recording for somebody or sometimes Video or something editing. Um, but I just mostly have to make my own schedule,
0: yeah. I mean, we've pulled it off this long. I feel... yeah, what, what could go wrong? What yeah, well, <laughs> I have a list of fears in that in that category, Philip. well, i I
2: have the thing where I'm pretty aware that the the price is being destitute. And the advantage is other people say, oh, I've got to do this. And I say, well, good luck. (laughs) I don't (laughs) don't have to do anything. (laughs) Um, When I was making better money, uh, it was great because I had never made money from writing songs, you know, until I was about 24 or something. And uh, it was such, I, I, I actually would get up and think that there was something wrong, like what do I have to do today? And the answer was, you know, what you would do if you didn't have anything to do. So that was the great thing about music, but the business is a little bit different than it used to be. You How- remember the the days of independent labels when you could make kind of a middle-class living if you were willing, if you were okay <laughs> and you're willing to get in a van and those things,
3: you know,
2: a lot of bands I know did that and I think it's a little bit different now. You got to do a lot of touring now. Um which people used to sell more records. Right? So it was a little yeah. bit different.
0: It was. And you, were you making money? I mean, how was it that you found yourself making money at 24? Like what what changed where suddenly you were making a living doing this?
2: Well, you remember Carnival Souls. I got publishing deal, uh, off that. So that was the first thing where I was making a salary, you know, a retainer or kind or whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, parsed out, you know, every month and I could actually live and not do anything else. I didn't use my time that well. (laughs) So (laughs) that's my fault. Um, but you know, that, that feeling or that sense you get where you feel like it's a trick and you're an imposter. So, uh, but there's this sudden thing like, Oh, maybe being an artist is kind of a job. That would be cool. Uh,
0: And that's what having a publishing deal did for me. How does that, how does that end? Like, how does a publishing deal end? Do they just come to you and go, well, I think, well, they don't, they don't renew. (laughs) Okay. (laughs)
2: Yeah. uh, I mean, I've been kind of Mostly now I'm sort of jumping ahead, but mostly now if I would make money on something like, uh, you know, a song and a movie or something, right. Cause the regular records don't sell so much that uh, you can, at least I can make a living on Spotify. Is <laughs> right. A joke. Um, but then there were more publishing deals where you were, where somebody was investing and record deals too. um, And I had some small ones of those Uh, people were kind of investing in a gamble, like a typical music business thing where they would think you were going to do well and they wanted to own some publishing. And so they would give you money up front. It's like a bank. It's like a bank with no judgment, but you know, it's like a bank. Were you writing songs for other people? I tried to write songs for other people. Um, That was not a condition of my publishing deal. Uh, I just liked the idea. And occasionally they would have something like very broad, you know, a wide net like Dolly Parton looking for songs. And I would think, so I remember
0: writing a song for Dolly Parton that of course she never did, but I remember writing it. That, I mean, just to have that opportunity to say, you know, that, that, that's a cool, I mean, I know it doesn't go anywhere on a resume, but that's still pretty cool.
1: Well, you know,
2: it, it's hard. It's like, it's hard to know where you are in terms of all that. I know that some people never make a living at all. My life has been kind of difficult from choosing to not make a living some other way, which, you know, is fine. Uh I have some envy of people who have it, you know, money (laughs) money coming in or something. Yeah. Uh, But I know that some people never get to even relax one second. So, I mean, in that regard, I'm lucky. Uh, It's not, you know, the business changed a lot. I think your business changed a lot actually. Which one, the writing or academia? Well, I think that very specifically part of your business, uh, and I find this to be kind of an interesting subject lately. Is there aren't really any critics anymore? You know, oh. oh, and and I used to think, no offense, I used to think when I was growing up, maybe that's a good thing, like because you always had a fear of the critic. Uh, what if I make a record and they just tear it apart? You know, and I worked really hard and everybody thinks it's terrible. You know, why would somebody do that to me? Right. Uh, but on the other hand, I grew up reading, you know, people like the first I read, you know, Christa the village voice. Right. And, uh, a lot of things that he said resonated with me and actually I ended, you know, I was mad at the time, but I ended up agreeing with him. I remember when I was like 13, he said, uh, It was all downhill since my generation about The Who, right? And, you know, I share that opinion a lot more than I used to. (laughs) (laughs) I used to think, how dare you? You know, but The Who was such a great 60s pop band. Pete Townsend is such a a great short pop rock songwriter, so fierce, you know, that's added into it, that it kind of gives you everything you want. But people back then, you remember, they used to criticize anybody. They used to say shit about Miles Davis. I have these old issues of 78 Quarterly, which was a, you know, like Robert Crum and people like that. And they would talk shit about Robert Johnson, like Robert Johnson, like somebody who would never touch. (laughs) They would say, he's not singing so well on this one. And I thought, wow, (laughs) times have changed. I mean, now... If you're some 12 year old on TikTok, you get reviews that would make, you know, Grail Marcus blush. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everybody gets them. I'm not sure it's good. It's like uh, somebody who I won't mention, uh, you know, one of those young people off Disney or TikTok and uh, no less than the New York Times, like a perfect record. <laughs> uh we deserve this, really? And I thought, God, the Velvet Underground wishes that they could get that kind of press, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and also, I mean, in those days, like Lester Bangs, I mean, if you if you look at Bangs, I mean, pound for pound, it's hard to imagine, like, a better writer, somebody who had such command of, of like, of the sentence. I mean, the guy was unbelievable. Well, I don't want to be pretentious and say that gets
2: lost on people or something, but I think some ways, his reputation has been, you know, kind of like, you know how Keith Richards' reputation has become, oh, you know, cigarettes and uh, telecasters and, right, hard living. But to me, of course, Keith Richards is just such an incredible songwriter. It's almost funny when they talk songs, you know, you don't get Keith Richards in there much. He's more of an iconic rock personality. Uh, and Lester Bangs, a really intelligent person writing about music, and I think his kind of lifestyle and persona can get in the way of, you know, he had really interesting things to say about stuff at a time, you know, that were different than other people. You remember his uh, his response about, um, <laughs> I can't remember who he called a bad guitar player, like, you know, Eric Clapton or somebody. <laughs> and somebody wrote him and said, how dare you, you know? And he said, well, you know, Lou Reed bought at Manny's Music a $4,000 guitar and plugged a soldering iron to, in it, you know, in the jack to see what it would sound like. And that's rock and roll. And that was a good answer. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. And he he was smart enough. He, well, he was so smart, but he he also was like playing with the form. Where he would like, I can't remember what band it was, but he actually made the band up and he wrote a review of this band that he literally (laughs) made up. And you know, that's before the days where you could basically Google it and see who the hell these people were. And it was like the most brilliant review written about something that didn't even exist. It's almost like he just.
2: I also grew up on Cream Magazine, you know, and Cream Magazine had a very heavy satirical edge. And I mean, in a non politically correct way, sometimes, but they made fun of a lot of bands, and that was kind of a... I mean, they. I remember they used to call routinely Bruce Springsteen, you know, refer to him as El Jefe in in print. (laughs) (laughs) And that was just their, you know, a kind of irreverent attitude they had. But it's a very different world. Fanzines and all that stuff. I'm not sure the demise of the regular critic has been great because, you know, people like Kanye West, who... I want to say I have defended many times uh, because I think that he was for a long time the victim of a lot of racism, right? Because people don't like hip hop and they think it's, and hip hop, you know, is the successor to so many kinds of music, you know, blues music, and it is a folk music and it has a lot of qualities that we love about, uh, especially early hip hop before sequencing. It has a lot of the qualities that we love about, you know, African influenced music. Um, And I think a lot of people still there is a racism thing they don't get you know it's like noise it's it's bullshit, you know hip hop is junk. Um, And I think it's just kind of a racist attitude and and he was the recipient of it because he was so famous but he's another person that no one will ever say anything like there's I truly believe people are scared of him. Uh, And maybe he wouldn't have run for president if people had said hey you know your last record sucked. (laughs) <laughs> but nobody would touch it. You know, isn't uh, Pitchfork owned by I'm gonna you better edit all this out.
0: Isn't Pitchfork <laughs> owned by Conde
2: Nast, right?
0: You know, that 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 might be true. And I and I don't know, but I know that because they sound
2: like it now and they didn't yeah, use they it. Yeah,
0: they do now. They do now that yeah. yeah, they do. And I I also think that there something happened even for me where I downshifted out of being a critic and decided to just be a fan who happens to write about the things he likes because I don't feel comfortable anymore. I, I mean, you knew me in my thirties where I was, where I was a rock critic, where, where I would weigh in on something and say it if it was terrible, I would say, I don't feel particularly comfortable if somebody mortgages their house or takes time away from their kid or sacrifices their marriage or, you know, or like a year's worth of their money to make an album. I don't really feel great in four sentences, just dismantling that. It doesn't, it just doesn't seem useful.
2: Do you, I mean. do you know that Carnival Souls got a, a review in a musician of Flop?
0: <laughs> do you no, know I didn't. I didn't know that. What one, did they say?
2: The, it was J.D. Constantine, right? So okay. it was one of those four sentence reviews. Right. And it, it was so, uh, what's the word? Arch. It wasn't bad, but it was just one of those things where I had to read it many times before I knew if it was bad or good. The uh, first sentence was, "Remember how terrible it was to be young."
0: <laughs> yeah, I still don't know if that's a good review <laughs> or a bad review.
2: <laughs> right. I mean, it was yeah, you know, it was a fine review. I mean, it was a, I would say a positive review. But he used to tear people. Around. He used to try to, I think, you know, try to turn a phrase and be. It was a thing in those days. You know, it may have come from pauline kale from all i know you know uh but it came from somebody and i mean i appreciate what you're saying because the you do want somebody to it's like movies you know it's like any or books you 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 want somebody to tell you what kind of thing it is um i wish i was less sensitive but you know I, i think once on record i made starless it got sent around to a bunch of websites and I now like websites, right? But especially then, which was a while back now. Um, but it was just not sent by me to a bunch of people who weren't going to like it. And one guy said, uh, I know what this guy's trying to do and none of it works. I thought, wow, is that my, you know, is that my musical career summed up right there? None of it works. Uh, other people said, oh, don't take this. You know, who is this person? They like, you know, black metal or something. But I still was like, wow. You know, it still sort of dug into me. So I can't speak for being oversensitive, but I can say maybe, you know, it's good to for more people to inform the public. The The trouble is the, the worship, you know, the stand culture that has seeped into everything means that every review just can't have enough superlatives and there are people who i don't despise or anything but they just don't have lots of musical talent but you wouldn't know it from reading you know pitchfork i know my god you know there and and you'd think some of these people were Aretha franklin you know and that's a high it's the highest bar after all uh
0: one of them yeah, do you remember that movie that came out, God, it was with John Favreau and it was called Chef. And yeah, yeah, right. And, and Oliver Platt plays this sort of grumpy food critic and he just tears up Favreau and there's a moment I've mentioned this before on the podcast where there's a moment where Favreau is in the kitchen and he knows that Platt is in the in the restaurant and he's drunk and he comes out and he and he says to Platt in, in defense of, you know, Platt had this scathing review and Favreau says to him, I'm trying hard. Like, it's not like I'm trying to like, like, it's not like I'm fucking up. Like I'm really trying and you're just being awful. And so it's a really, that was the moment for me where I went, I don't want to, I don't want to write about things that don't land with me. I just don't think
2: it's useful anymore to do that. Well, that's actually true because, uh, I would say, I don't say a lot of things in my own defense. This is why I was terrible at booking gigs when I used to have to do it. Uh, I would feel like I was apologizing. Sorry. I don't, you know, sorry, we're no good. Can we play there? Uh, (laughs) But I, I sort of do feel that what you're saying, that line, like I feel like I'm sincere, you know, like I'm not trying to put something over on anybody just and what else can I say? You know, it's not for me right. to say other, other things about it. I can talk about other musicians all day. You know, you should see my record collection, man. this is some good music, but I can't make any claim to living up to that music. Uh, but I'm just, you know, I'm trying the best I can, um, which I know is like a great sales pitch. It's also in uh, defending your life, right? Oh Yeah. Albert Brooks keeps on saying to the people who are judging his past,
0: I did the best I could. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I, I, you know, that's the moment where I thought to myself, I get so much joy. Like I've, I've loved everything you've ever done. And I get so much joy out of your, out of your work alongside other people who I just love. And I thought like, it's more valuable to me to write about the things that light me up and make my heart sing um, because the other one feels like, I remember I used to like write a shitty review about a band when I was in my twenties or early thirties and I would go, ha ha, I did it, you know? And I, and I, I landed this like really cool, strategic, artful blow, but it always made me feel awful. Like it never, you know, like for, I, I used to feel smug about it for 10 minutes and then I, I, I'd, I'd feel awful for a year. Um, well,
2: I think you probably get, don't you into a different mindset? when something is either broadcast or published. Because, I mean, you know, I'm not a saint. If you get me alone, I can talk shit about a lot of people. You know, uh, bands, just stuff I don't like, or I don't get, uh, famous bands, not famous bands, just things I didn't relate to. Um, but I wouldn't do it in a public forum probably. Right. You know, because it just feels nasty. Uh, So once it goes out there, I know that it changes like a lot of things. Uh, And I find this a trouble promoting because I was trying to, my new record, you know, I was trying to get the word out about it. But honestly, still after all this time, I mean, how many songs have I written? You know, 1,200, 1,300 songs. And alone, I think, Uh, you know, it's all right. (laughs) And then as soon as I put it up online or something, it's just like, ah, it just feels weird and cheap. And I wonder, you know, how is this, is this like the music I like? And all of those doubts come because now somebody else can hear it. Uh, It's less that way with records somehow. It's more like you make the record and by the time somebody orders it, you know, you kind of there's so much time has passed, but in the promotional stage, and I know people are good at it. God, they're fucking professionals at it. I can't curse. Can I? It's the air. You can curse as much as you like. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they've become, people have become very, I mean, and this is something I'm kind of, you know, critical of, but, cause I also, you know, have sort of a, had a audio career, right. I had a recording studio. Right. So I, would produce bands and mix records for people and stuff. And I used to write for Tape Op, which was the you know was the recording magazine. Sure. And, and uh, I've noticed in Tape Op and in other recording magazines that people, and I'm sure you've noticed this for bands too, people really know how to say the right thing now, uh, except me, <laughs> but most people know how to say the right thing. And I think that's just a skill. It's like having a social skill. You know, like your wife is very beautiful, and I love Towns Van Zandt. You know, they're like the same. You don't have to love Towns Van Zandt, but it's a good thing to say. I do love Towns Van Zandt uh, myself, but uh, they've become very good at talking a good game, and they don't always back it up, or I should say, maybe not back it up in the way that you would think. Like all the recording engineers say, oh, I don't do anything, you know, I don't want to use gear. I just want the band to be themselves, you know. So it sounds like the old punk rock aesthetic. Like mm. I was just there with a microphone, right? And that's a good aesthetic. Uh, but then you hear their records and it's not everybody, but you hear some people's records and it's like the same auto-tune Grimes pop. you know. And you think, right. what was this person talking about? Jesus Christ, this is nothing, you know, like what you advertised, uh and it's the old uh remember uh No Depression? Of course. Okay, so no depression. I used to laugh again. It's not really criticism, but just funny. No Depression used to have kind of a stock photo, which would be you know, somebody's apartment in Austin with an old Gibson guitar and a cow skull on the wall, and then like a something like a copy of gravity's rainbow, you know, something something to show that you're not just a hillbilly, you know, you also have this other side. And I think that was just a thing that worked for them. But, you know, if you saw it enough times, you little chuckle.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I just, it's interesting how criticism has shifted where I think also the fact that two things, one, I think because, you know, print magazines mostly folded. Um, yeah, yeah. Know. You know, and like I remember I used to write these really – I remember you put an EP out and I wrote like a 4,500-word piece <laughs> on it. Um, you know, it's like it's only four songs, but I just kept going. But I think also length. I mean I think the the internet with the advent of digital digital media, print media folding – I think that long-form journalism has shortened. So it's now, it's all about brevity now.
2: Well, you know, I used to do interviews for Tape Op. I, not many. but I did one with the bomb squad, you know, public enemy. Um, I did my friend Jim Dickinson at the time, uh, my friend Bob Olson, who's from Motown. Um, and I would really work at it. And they were long interviews. And mostly they indulged me. But that was a while back. I mean, that is going... I could never probably... Get something published like that anymore. Right. Uh and it's weird too, because I understand why. And I mean, media has needs to make money and for brevity and stuff, but some subjects are worth going into depth. You know, recently I read the uh Kierkegaard wrote a long essay on Don Giovanni and Mozart. Uh It was funny to me because I was about a third of the way through it before I remembered that Kierkegaard, of course, (laughs) had no recording of Don Giovanni. There was no such thing. (laughs) And I realized he was doing all of this probably primarily from recollections. You know, I mean, sure, he could read the music or play on the piano, but the performance of Don Giovanni, the effect it had on him, it's very interesting that writing would come from memory like that uh, and impressions like that. Because if you or I were trying to review a record, we'd listen to it tons of
0: times. Right. It's a luxury. <laughs> right. Right. And I also think that in in defense of old school journalism, let's just say 80s journalism, yeah. what I liked is I used to like that there was something at stake where if you put a record out that wasn't good and the critics got on it and and they said that your career could, could end, right? Like, I remember like, like, so take like Cyndi Lauper, just, just bear with me. So you figure that she's so unusual, like that album came out, that was massive. Right. And then she follows it up with true colors. And then I challenge anyone right now without looking, what was the album after that? And the, the reason why you don't know is because it came out and it, it bombed immediately. And that was it. Right. And then you didn't hear from her again for 15 years until she showed up on the apprentice or something. But in the old days, it was almost like the English football where it's like, if you're not successful you get bumped down to the other league. <laughs> right. And I sort of liked the, the British press, I think probably did that more than the American press. But I, so I did like that part where there was something at stake. Now it feels like, you know, like I saw the other day, they're sort of like, it's not Dua Lipa, but it's somebody else who's on their like sixth album, and I was like, "How is that possible?" Where they, there's no worry of failure anymore. And right. well, um, that's what
2: I was saying about Kanye that 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 the ego is so unchecked because because I'm not a huge fan. I, I thought yeah, I remember Kanye from Jay Z, you know, yeah, making beats and stuff. And he's not you know an untalented person, but no, I don't particularly love his thing. Like he he had a kind of groundbreaking thing with uh 88 and heartbreaker where that record was called but it's not my favorite thing you know just personally the the auto tune and the you know that style which is but it was very influential um and i think his music uh, i mean i'm sort of (laughs) this is a tough issue because i'm kind of for. i used to be so anti-self-indulgence i thought The Buzzcocks were the only band, you know, that should rock band that should be allowed because they got short, great, you know, songs that are to the point. And that was just like a a high watermark. But of course, uh, in the 70s, as people get more ambitious, including jazz musicians, you have these really sprawling records. And myself, not that I would ever be able to do, you know, a kind of Eddie Gale record or something, but just that after I had written enough short rock songs, the the urge to, not because I think it's better, but just because, you know, what are you gonna do? You wanna do something different. And it's, I understand it differently now as kind of something you gotta do. Like, I remember talking once, I guess, well, again, I shouldn't say that, you can edit it out. Uh, I was talking to Tommy Stinson once about his record, the Bash and Pop record versus Paul Westerberg's record, which, and, you know, Tommy, since it was more of a rock record and what he said about it was kind of illuminating. He said, well, I can just do the thing, you know, but Paul, you know, he's an artist. He's got to, he's got to do something else, uh, whether or not it's the best thing. And I thought, yeah, I mean, that's, that's probably true. Not that I don't think Tommy Stinson's an artist, but I think he's an artist of a different kind, you know? Uh, And so sometimes you just gotta do what you gotta do. And people, if you have any band, chances are there's somebody on the earth who wants that first band. But I think the reason I thought so many musicians didn't age well musically uh, when I was growing up was they were musicians who were trying to mimic themselves, and when they weren't trying to do that, or in the case of like a Bo Diddley or somebody, you know, could do it still, because the blues guys are different, right? You know, Lighton Hopkins doesn't sound compromised. No, <laughs> when he when he's old, you know, uh, and Bo Diddley, I I avoided his output, you know, past the '50s for a long time, and then I realized no matter what is going on with Bo Diddley record production or anything, he's just so elemental that there's nothing you can do to stand in the way of it. You know, it's kind of that way in country music, like they've thrown some cheesy songs and terrible arrangements at country artists. But if you got a voice like Merle Haggard, there's almost nothing you can do to fuck it up.
0: And so do you mean imitate, like you mean like people where it goes wrong, where... Well, you're trying to be a a 17-year-old writing
2: about how a girl won't go out with you, you know, and you're 16 years old and it just doesn't ring true. You have to do something you mean. I know that's simplistic, but you have to do something you mean. And I think sometimes when people are getting paid for things and there's a lot of people around, because, you know, you see this on records. There's, it's not really people think that the artist is always in control and, you know, they have this say that's powerful, but it's difficult. Sometimes when you see how records are made, there's a lot of fear, there's money issues, there's cooperation issues. There ends up being a lot of compromise between record company, producer, sometimes family, you know, all the things pulling people from doing maybe what they want to do or at least something that's unadulterated uh that's the music business you know i don't know if it's true i never felt that way about brazilian records you know like i mean i'm sure they are (laughs) that way but when you hear like a Catana veloso record you feel like no one's around telling him what to do and maybe that's true maybe the the Brazilians just value music more than we do in the States in a different way. I mean, their airport is named after a guitar player. So. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Jobim, Jobim airport. Um, and Quintana Veloso is a genius. I mean, I, I didn't buy that record with him on the cover in the speedos because I thought it would be like a disc. It just looked like a disco record. And it is one of the most outside fucking records. I mean, the first song or the second song, he just hums on it. For a long time, and it's amazing. Uh, but you, that sense of a Stevie Wonder or somebody who who comes up and and does you know their thing and sticks with their thing uh, can convert a lot of people. It's the people that maybe who have success, you know, being a kind of angsty and they can't do it. I mean, honestly, I feel this way a little bit about Elvis Costello. Yeah. <laughs> Because yeah. there's always this, oh, I'm returning thing. And it's like, don't don't bother, you know, do whatever. Write a symphony, man,
3: you know.
0: I know that people have compared you to Paul Westerberg, uh, including me. I've done it. Um, and you've always been sort of replacements adjacent. Um, what was your relationship to the band? I mean, did you know them or did you see them? You know, I don't know. I, I had
2: not in any kind of relationship with the replacements, but, you know, I used to hang out, you know, at the shows and then Tommy lived in LA and we rehearsed the same place. And of course I knew Jim, so there were connections and I knew, and of course I was friends with, you know, not great friends, but I was friends with Tony Keene too, who played guitar. Right. Um And so, and I, I, you know, I idolized the replacements at one point. I, I thought they represented along with a couple other bands, you know, very much what I wanted to be, uh, a tough, you know, sound, but a song, but it's songs. Like Neil Young does in a Generation. Uh, the replacements were like, again, a review. I, I picked up, when I was a teenager, I picked up Rolling Stone and they had a three record review of Double Nickels on the Dime, Zen Arcade, and Let It Be. Shut. All reviewed in the same review. And I bought all those records you know, because of that review and they did not disappoint, you know, that's what I was looking for was that punk rock kind of uh, energy and, and lack of pretense, but, you know, personal songs. So that's what I always like, you know, is there's the personal uh, feeling, you can get it from any kind of music, but when you talk about, uh, you know, cause I write songs, well, I wrote instrumental music for two years recently, but I do write, obviously, songs and lyrics. And I, I, I love words, and I, so I'm listening to people in that regard. You know, I don't just ignore them. And uh, that kind of personal feeling, I mean, I think in a way what attracted me to the Big Star's third record is it's a really early example of that really personal kind of writing. Uh, that even the other records big star did they kind of have it but you really get it on the third one uh you know famous songs now uh, like nighttime you know for the time that they came out they're very much predicting you know indie rock yeah yeah and also that was jim's thing that was why i became friends with jim i mean he got one of my cassettes demo and he that was part of it. But also for me, and I remember he said this to my managers at the time. He said, have you ever heard that record to my man, one of my managers? I said, have you ever heard Big Stars Third? I can't. He might have said no. He said, well, you probably should listen to it because that's why he wants to work with me, which was entirely true. Also, Jim played with Sam and Dave. Yeah. The, and I, that was a big deal to me. But um, so when I first talked to Jim, we talked about Southern Soul. I wanted to know everything about James Carr, who was pretty obscure at the time. Um, And Jim knew him, you know, and played with him. And then Jim played on uh, Spirit in the Dark, the Aretha Franklin, you know, and of course on Wild Horses. So uh, Jim was a fascinating person, but it was Big Star because Big Star had rock songs, personal rock songs, but the orchestration of it was wild. Like the Beach Boys would have 40 instruments, right? You know, orchestras and 10 double basses and blah, blah. But Big Star doesn't have an orchestral approach, but it has a, an orchestral approach in terms of arrangement. They'll be like feedback guitar, electric bass, and oboe, and you're done, <laughs> you know? And, and how many records like that is that the instrumentation on? You know, it's a very interesting uh, color palette for a rock you know for a rock pop record so that was like the Pandora's Box thing I think me but I was late to it a lot of people thought oh yeah big star." you know they they happened upon this thing we like that's this unpretentious kind of you know but still songwriting thing because all the British guys who I loved as much as I love Elvis Costello you know there's a point where he's too clever (laughs) right i think that's kind of why i was really enamored of graham parker because i felt he was less that way you know he was more kind of dylan-y because dylan's clever but he doesn't for all of dylan's weirdness you know and and verbiage he does he doesn't you don't feel like he's kind of trying to be clever he's just being weird
0: i mean especially lately i mean <laughs> yeah. I, I i would rather have like graham parker live alone in america with an electric guitar like the way that billy bragg did it than you know elvis costello doing a record with burt Backerack. i just oh, i don't know i don't know why that stuff like really got on my nerves in a i, I mean know, it's like i'm I, doing the thing well, i, I for, yeah. for
2: me it's because i don't like burt Backerack. you know that's that's yeah
0: probably, maybe that's you know. what it is i, mean, I don't either because
2: because I I've tried to warm up to some kinds of British dance hall influenced, you know, music hall rather, uh, uh, dance hall. I wish God, if they sounded like King jammy, I'd be in heaven, but no, um, music hall stuff. I mean, the kinks did it. And I always think it's later than it is, but, uh, you know, around village green, what's that 66, they start doing, you know, accordions and your mom's cooking and, you know, those types of songs. And, uh, I appreciate it more now, but I mean, because Ray Davies, obviously amazing, amazing songwriter. Uh, the kinks amazing, but it's the Paul McCartney thing where, you know, Paul McCartney writes a Blackbird type song, but then a Maxwell Hammer type song, which I don't want to hear. Right. <laughs> And You know, who am I to say anything about Paul McCartney? But, you know, what I would say about Paul McCartney is when those solo records came out, you know, the a track ones, the uh, Ram and, uh, you know, McCartney too. Uh, that's what I really, I loved hearing that, you know, because the stripped down nature of it is something I really love for his music because it kept all the things that were good about his music. You know, it didn't, ruin them but it was just leaner uh that's why i love the plastic on band you know i love that one of my favorite records is the plastic the first you know plastic on band record it was just so like bare yeah uh and lennon's again you know now it's turning into classic rock love fest but you know (laughs) you bring this out in me because you know that's you too uh because lennon's a great you know, see, that's the thing. As a person, I can't attest to anything particularly about him. I who knows, but he has a, especially later to me, a very thing a thing that's hard with writing. Which is he has a sincerity where, in spite of his position in life, uh, the meaning of the songs. You know, he manages to get those across in a direct way, and that's a difficult. You know, it's a high bar to do that. I think Towns Van Zad has it, you know, Dylan has it in a in a Dylan breaks all the rules because I never saw Dylan ever in my life. I've seen him be terrible, but I never saw him where I thought it was like a snow job, like it was some trick he was playing, like he was trying to be noticed, or any of that stuff. It was always just like tonight he doesn't care, you know. And hey, you know, sometimes you're not feeling it.
0: No one ever that I know saw Dylan and said he was, he was an outstanding, it was an outstanding show. Everyone always went, Oh, that was weird. Well, you know
2: who say that? And they're right. I think is the, is earlier on. Yeah. Yeah. Consistent. But all the times I've seen him, he has been very good at times. Um, The eighties weren't so great when I was first seeing him and I was really, you know, I would go anyway, but I was kind of like, what? Uh, But later, you know, when um time out of mind came out, there was some good, there was not good Dylan shows. Yeah. Right. I think he was feeling it. And, you know, Jim played on that record too, not to make this the Jim Dickinson show, but uh, Jim played on the record. And he was very excited to play on it. And so before anybody had ever heard it, you know, I heard about it <laughs> uh, and Jim would call me up. And the first thing he said to me was most things in this life disappoint, but Bob Dylan's not one of them. Mm. And I thought, wow, this must be a pretty good record because you know Jim wasn't like a glad hander; he didn't like compliment people. Um, and uh, that is a good record, man. <laughs> you know,
0: do you have a relationship with Jim's sons?
2: No, no, I um, I, I I've never, you know, his family. I would talk. So much of this is the proximity of um, things, and I would talk to Mary, his wife, or or the kids on the phone. Uh, I think Cody and Luther even must have overdubbed on some songs of mine at one point. It wasn't my idea. It was Jim's idea. He's got a good band in the house, you know. Let him do something. Sure. Uh, But, uh, so, you know, just to say hi, I mean, I think they at one point knew who I was, but, um, and if you see the, uh, was it the Big Star documentary? Anyway, the one where they're in Jim's house. There's actually a Carnival Souls poster on the wall. Really? Of the studio, yeah, which I thought was really cool. Oh, man, how did I miss that? That's, a, that's Well, a it's, cool. I don't think you'd know, unless you knew it, I don't think you'd see it, but yeah.
0: Man, that is too cool. Yeah, I. and by the way, you mentioned Tommy Keene. Tommy Keene was a monster guitar player, because I, I saw him with Westerberg, and I, I don't think I realized at the time, that would have been 96 here in San Francisco. I don't think I realized, because I always thought of him as just a songwriter who I loved. Right. I didn't realize what an absolute beast he was on the guitar.
2: I like Tommy. You know, he was a, a really it's weird when people die because the things you remember about him. Um and Tommy was just a nice, you know, Tommy's a nice guy and a sensitive, you know, musician like like many I know. But uh I don't think the business was too good to him. I don't think maybe people got a rounded impression of and you know maybe part of that was his fault, but sometimes it happens that way where you don't really get the dimension of somebody, you know, John stabbed died a few years back from government yep. issue, which was a, a, and immediately when John died, you know, I, I thought that I see John at every single show. I went to, no matter who it was, John was always there and he always had something good to say about the band. Sometimes when I didn't, you know, but, when he died looking back on it i appreciate that sort of support and enthusiasm about everything i saw him at a damned show and he argued with me that that they didn't even start to get good until strawberries i was like what the fuck are you talking about <laughs> <laughs> like, you know i uh those kind of people you know i mean it, i often think that enthusiasts are the greatest you know, because people always introduce you to musicians and that can be great, but also I can talk about like, um, the tremolo on a Fender amp for about 12 minutes and then you lose me. <laughs> and I like it for that amount of time. It's, you know, I'm kind of into that gear stuff, but you know, then you lose me. And, and so you have to have something else to talk about and, uh, musicians, especially when you're on tour a lot, you know, not to generalize, but just because you're a musician doesn't mean you want to talk to every other musician in the world, but music fans, the person who comes to you and says, Hey, you got to check this out. You know, that's just an invaluable person. (laughs) Uh, Because when would I have ever heard, you know, international harvester or, you know, acid mother's temple or something without somebody,
0: you know, saying, Hey, you got you to gotta hear this. And also the DC scene, because a lot of what you're talking about for people who, who don't know, like you mentioned Government Issue or you mentioned Tommy Keene, like that's a regional thing. I mean you're talking about yeah. like – right? And so I wonder for you, like did Bad Brains connect with you? Uh, in terms of? Well, being a young man and being – like I talked to Alana Davis a couple of years ago, and she told me how much she loved Bad Brains, and I loved hearing that because I didn't expect her to say that um but she talked about seeing them play well that's the
2: thing if uh, i saw the bad brains play if you see the bad brains play i mean i'm sure ever but let's just say when you see them kind of roughly in what's considered their early period uh i didn't see them the very or i didn't see them when uh, uh hr had dread short dreadlocks by the time i saw them so that would have been the early 80s or something. Okay. When he when he had like a crew cut, I didn't, I was, I'm not old enough to have seen them at Madam's organ in the first shows, but anybody who saw the bad brains in that first incarnation, it could not be anything but a fan. I mean, there's nothing like it. All the DC punk bands, all they're trying to do is sound like that. And sometimes an exciting thing was to see somebody not be able to do it because of the sheer energy it takes to fail at it is just compelling but the bad brains are just different and a friend of mine tim would remember this i think we were both at this wst hall show without knowing you before we knew each other as teenagers and uh they started some song band in dc or something and hr was not to be found and he was up on the rafters And he did a backflip off the rafters, you know, on his, he landed on the beat on the one to start singing. (laughs) And that might've been the most incredible thing. I mean, I've seen Iggy pop, but that might, that might've been, you know, they were just so fucking like fierce. Uh, It, you couldn't help, but be inspired in some way.
1: Won't you come in? It's warmer inside All the stars
0: i got flop when i got the carnival of souls album which you you know i love so much like i hate yeah i know yeah i know you're you're like the lee mavers like you like you hate the you hate the album (laughs) i I love i love it well Well, you might be the only one but
3: the thing
2: about that is again it's sort of the context like we were going around doing a bunch of different demos and we started to get the hang of it and i started to get the hang of writing and you know, cause I had been in bands as bass player, but Carl's was my first, you know, band as my own a singer. Um, and so I was kind of getting the hang of it. And there were a couple of songs on that record maybe that I thought, you know, would have made it to the next six months, but most of them weren't gonna, you know, cause I was just kind of feeling my way out and also was hard to uh, you know, when you don't know anything about recording, it's just such a frustrating experience in the 80s that was the end of the 80s or it was like 86 or something because it was recorded long before it came out and so you you're spending you know for us for kids quite a lot of money (laughs) and you sort of have to go with whatever you have and we just didn't you know I didn't feel we were getting it I had written that first song on that record holiday Holiday. like right then And I thought that was my best song. I thought that was the song I should write, you know, 12 more, more like that (laughs) than the other ones. That was the last one. And that was the best song of a record, I, I thought.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, for me, Holiday and Nothing to Say are two of my favorite songs of all time. And I think that what's interesting is that to me, putting Holiday on, hearing Holiday Was kind of like what you were saying about HR. For me, that was HR jumping from the rafters. Like that was a seismic moment for me as a listener here in California. Like it's amazing how this stuff travels. And like I don't even know how you got the record in the first place. That was kind of a hard record to get. (laughs) Yeah, I'll tell you how I got it. I got. I was music director of my college radio station, and if I remember correctly, it was Top Records, right? You're right. It was. And and they sent me Carnival of Souls, and they sent me the Wolves. Right, 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 and I looked at the wolves and I went, "Fuck those guys!" I I, for no reason, I had no reason to say that, just because I was a snotty nineteen-year-old and Carnival of Souls looked cool, and um, so I went straight to that. I never actually heard the Wolves record, which may have been my a big mistake, but um, Carnival of Souls for me, like that that flop album, just was a knockout. And so, but to me, it's like you were like out of the box. To me, like Holiday. I would put up there with, with anything I was listening to at the time. And that was like replacements. That would've been 89. That would've been what, like, don't tell a soul or like whatever it was. Like I thought that was as good as it gets. And I couldn't wait to see what happened next. And then literally I never heard from you again. And then by chance I saw the bong load catalog and they said quinine. And then in parentheses, Ex Carnival of Souls, and I was like, "Wait, there he is!" Because I had no way of finding out what you were up
2: to. Well, you know what really happened is, is we recorded a second record, which I thought was much much better, and then it never came out because we weren't really a band anymore. But we were had been playing live for you know a couple of years uh, when we did the second recording. My friend Rob Schnaff, we did it in her ear with Don, you know, and and Eli, who uh, from Girls Against Boys, and um, it kind of didn't, you know it was like right the beginning of my publishing deal and my sort of interest from labels and stuff. Uh, but we couldn't as a band, as people, not from animosity, but it it just wasn't practical, uh, for the three of us to tour. Uh, so that record, the one I wanted to come out, didn't come out. And then, you know, I've always had trouble getting records made. It, it, I don't know if it's me or luck or whatever, but, they come out at weird times and and that's why I started making my own, you know, was just put, and I don't even do it that often, but, you know, I wrote this new record, you know, I wrote 50 songs and I, if I was on some label, I don't know what kind of record it would be, you know,
0: Did Quinine have a bit of success? Quinine's a really interesting band. Um, No, not really. I mean, uh, I mean
2: to to be blunt, part also partly also I tried to kill myself and so it oh. wasn't very convenient. Um uh I was on the thing about quinine is I was unhappy, just personally, not because of quinine, but uh I, I just LA had nobody's fault but my own, you know. Um but what happens to a lot of people. I think is that you're having a grand time because the music you're playing, like me and Carnival Souls, the music I was playing in Carnival Souls was really close to just whatever I wanted to do, you know, um, because we weren't trying to be popular, and that's great. And also because of the guys in the band, they were great in that way. Like Tony, guitar player uh, at the time, like if you said to Tony he had this kind of flat West Palm beach, Florida accent. And, uh, if you said to him, you're playing at the 9:30 club and we're opening for, you know, soul asylum or something as we would do stuff like that. And if we, if we said, uh, let's just play mandolins, let's not play any of our songs. <laughs> and Tony would always say, yes, let's do that. That would be great. I mean, he met, you know, it was great to be at least with somebody who wasn't going to fight you on, uh, your stupid ideas, uh, but the minute I started making money, you know, and and that's just my fault. But the, the you expectations start to weigh on you. You know, your friends are. <laughs> it sounds dumb, but you know, the people are expecting something of you, and what are you going to do? And other people are are uh, more resilient, maybe, but. I don't think that there was much of a DC music scene for what I was doing. There was a great punk scene and those people were making great records with their friends. But I'm just a distant satellite on that, just by virtue of the fact of having played on some records with some of those people. Um, Eddie even was on the original Carnival Souls started as an instrumental band. I don't know if you know that. No. Uh, it was like an improvisatory experiment. And it was me and Chad and Tony, but also Eddie Jenny, who was in the Rites of Spring. Oh, man. So that was, you know,
0: how I wanted to start. (laughs) Are you, and the Carnival of Souls guys still pals? Yeah, I mean, out of touch, but yeah. Yeah. Um, Did L, this is going to sound like a crazy question, but... Did L.A. make you suicidal? I mean, was that something that kind of like, did it really fuck with your head?
2: No, Well, you know, I don't think it's easy for anybody. I I think that I had kind of come out and felt like there was a certain expectation of myself or other people had it. Not that was their fault, but, you know, you think you're going to do well or you want to do. Maybe you don't even think it. You want to do well professionally because it's kind of like nowhere to go but up uh and then when things don't work out the way you want them to you're disappointed in yourself i don't i don't think it has to do with much else for me uh it's easy to irk me you know like um i don't take criticism that well <laughs> I mean, but it wasn't in this case criticism but i mean the point is not that uh if you tell me hey the bass part you're playing sucks play another part that's fine you know i'm cool with that um but i'm just not good at like failing and in that manner that one fails in the music industry interesting enough i've heard this about eddie hinton (laughs) i was told by somebody who knew him that eddie hinton who was amazing uh you know he wrote uh what uh cover me that Percy Sledge did, mm. um, but that he, you know, he couldn't stand to fail. So every time he went out, he failed, and it tore him apart. <laughs> and you know, I, I've known people like that, and uh, you know, have been partially somebody like that. And when I got out of the music business, proper, which I wasn't in for that long. It was very easy to return to the old days of four-track cassette machines. And and I don't mean this in kind of groovy, like, oh, I'm so lo-fi and I return to my roots. I just mean that it's just easier to – when you don't know what people want, you just do whatever, and that's good. Uh, you know, I, I thought that nothing bothered me because I just used to feel philosophically like – you know, do your work and keep your head down and something good will happen Um, in terms of music, not, you know, life, because that's not true, but just in terms of music, you know, don't be an asshole, don't write about something to impress somebody or, you know, but it doesn't quite work that way. You have to, uh, keep changing and digging in yourself about things. And these are all sort of trite statements, but I do think that, uh, you see with a lot of different kinds of art, uh, you know, you read books about painters and, and writers, and there is this kind of sense of having to, especially as you get older, having to travel along with it Uh in some sense where you are able to, you know, redirect yourself to something of interest.
0: Is that how you picked up the pieces from the the sort of LA disaster?
2: Well, I enjoy, always enjoyed making records i think that's why i'm not better on a single instrument frankly <laughs> Is that uh because i you know when i was a teenager i wanted to be a bass player i thought you know i thought for a brief time i'm going to be the best bass player in the world that's going to be me you know i'm going to play with ornette coleman or something you know something um but i always liked recording and and writing songs and especially recording especially i think it's the thing the private thing You know, you learn to work the gear and then you get some microphones and you sit there in your room (laughs) like you're doing a painting or whatever. And in the same kind of way, you know, you control it. uh, And that's at least in the first stage when you're, you know, all those Carnival Soul songs we ever recorded or played, you know, there's a four track demo of me playing
0: (laughs) by myself. Well, I I think back to, the quinine album, which is, I think it's even, it's called regrets only. Right. Yeah. And I think like, when I listened to it, I thought this sounds like, (laughs) you'll know what I mean. This sounds like the guy from carnival of souls splitting apart from (laughs) splitting apart. Like it sounded like, it sounded like a, um, like a like a fracture, like a, like the soul, the soul was fracturing. It's, I mean, I love the record, but it's not an easy listen. I
2: also had bronchitis, which didn't help. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I was not living, you know, easy in those days. And uh, I had this terrible experience at, at Daniel and Wah's studio where I had lost my voice. And, you know, it's not like it's easy to set up a session there. Um, and probably because a lot was writing on it, I kind of folded. But, I mean, physically folded, you know. I just, I smoked so much. I drank so much, you know, all the time. And I just couldn't even speak. I was just tired. Uh, which was not a great thing to do.
0: Well, but in times of stress, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and and that's captured like as a snapshot, like an audio snapshot on that album. I mean, like I said, I love the album, but it's a, um, it's an uneasy listen, because I think that's what I've always picked up on is like, you weren't well, right?
2: Yeah, although you I guess you could say that for any record. Uh, <laughs> I. <laughs> Come on. No, because I, I mean, I have, I have problems. <laughs> uh, you know, the usual problems, anxiety problems, uh, depression problems, but everybody says that, but you know, I think mine are in the category of real. Um, and sometimes people just have to find a way to work that works for them. And for me, maybe because it's the way you learn the kind of home studio environment. When I had a recording studio, I tried to make it like my home. I mean, it was my home studio, but I, it was a, it was a better version (laughs) of a home studio. And, uh, in a way that's what Daniel and was trying to do. You know, he and that influenced Jim in his later years, the the open room thing, you know, because they didn't have a control room. They just had a mansion and they would just put the board I mean there are obviously sonic implications (laughs) to this to doing this that are negative, but the positive is the, the idea that you're out there in the room experiencing, you know, and this is something that comes from old records, where. If you talk to some of the old engineers, uh many of them will tell you that the headphones killed everything, at least for a long time, because the, the whole idea that people wanted to play louder and then wear headphones so they could hear themselves, it sends the whole thing, left brain, you know? And uh am I right? The left brain is what I'm talking about, the clinical. <laughs> Did I? Oh. Couldn't remember. Um, and and so people are used to like playing live in a room, you know, the way they did old records. And when you gave them headphones and then there was too much noise leaking through. So you put baffles up and now you have a group of musicians that have been playing professional music together for like decades. And, and they're in a recording situation where they can't hear themselves. And it really doesn't make any sense. It's just something that engineers kind of foisted on people for better separation you know, on their on their tracks. but yeah when you tell somebody who's young <laughs> about records, I, I sometimes forget to mention that they're for a long time, they're live. Records are just live for a long time. If you listen to Ella Fitzgerald, it's live, you know. <laughs> I think people just assume because of modern recording, That, you know, somebody comes in and then another person comes in and then they work hours on that vocal take. But many, many of those records are live. Chuck Berry records are live. And there's something about them being live, which has a kind of feeling, you know. And there's other ways to do things. And we know the Beatles, you know. Right. uh, Did it a different way. But I think that the more you try to keep a performance in there, uh, the better off you are and the home studio thing has a, a large trying to get in the roundabout way to has a large amount of chaos in it and i think chaos is great for music you know there's nothing worse than listening to somebody that, that is not an actual beetle having learned how to do everything on the white album and doing it on their own record you know it's, because when they're learning it it's cool. It's like, wow, where'd you get that sound? It's like, well, I was trying to get the Meltron sound on strawberry fields and I don't know how that's where the interesting sound comes from. And I don't know how the, the part where, you know, how, then it's just like, well, you're not in the Beatles. So
0: it's interesting. Cause I, I spoke to Justin Curry uh, from Delamitri years ago. And he was telling me, cause he and I w- we will talk and, and, uh, you know, every couple of months, and and he's such an interesting guy. He was telling me that that it, we were talking about Richard Ashcroft from the yeah, Verb. Yeah. and he was saying uh, that he just thinks Richard Ashcroft is just a brilliant singer. And I said he makes it sound so easy, and and Justin said if it sounds easy, it wasn't. And I've always thought about that because I like I listened to Love Reverberation, your, which is from your last record, and like that just sounds like everything i like there's there's an old joke andy kindler has a joke where he says i realize my comedy the demographic for my comedy is guys my age who are me and <laughs> i always i listen to love of reverberation and i go that's just all the shit that i like everything okay, so in that song
2: you, you know that song was the only one that wasn't recorded was recorded in my living room it was the only one that wasn't recorded in my basement studio and uh the reason is typical for a lot of people i'm sure whereas i had this whole record and, you know, most of those songs on Azalea, I kind of only half, I wrote them a couple of weeks, almost all of them, a couple of weeks before we recorded for, we recorded for like three days. And, uh, so I wrote, I sat in my, in a chair, <laughs> I spent a couple hours a night, just trying to write a bunch of material and some of them were only half done. So we recorded them and then I finished them, uh, or wrote the rest of it later, but love reverberation, uh, I don't know if this will make any sense to you, but when I had everything that was going to work mixed, I really wanted something that was sort of, what did I say at the beginning? Short and, you know, lean. And I felt like I didn't have it. And what I wanted, but didn't really get, is I was trying to write something like 13th floor elevators. Uh, You know, that's what I want. I wanted a simple, you know, one of those like simple 60s rock songs. Um, which I love and so that was that I had my living room very small living room at the time which is why it kind of sonically sounds different and uh and then I just
0: shoved it at the beginning of the record because I'm irresponsible (laughs) where would a responsible person put that that song (laughs) I don't know I mean
2: I I struggle because the, the thing see to me I'm correct me if I'm wrong but you know you're a very kind of pop music guy. And I don't mean pop music like yeah. Rihanna, but, you know, pop music in the old sense of it. Uh, and I struggle. I love that. And I struggle with it. The idea of it sometimes like it's cheap <laughs> or something. And so when I'm writing, and you know, you like a lot of different kinds of music and I don't know uh, for me, this is dumb, but your head just kind of, at times, those ones that are like short and took you five minutes and they're probably the catchy ones. And I think, ah, oh, this is junk. I can't put this on a record. I should be, I should be doing something more serious. I should be doing something with more feeling with more musical value. Uh, but, you know, it's, again, I, I can't, I'm a bad judge myself. Uh, when I think about what I like, you know, you one day I mean one hour you're listening to uh Penderecki and then the next one Hal and Wolf, and
0: those are both good kinds of music. Yeah. I mean, love reverberation for me is like it's 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 the thirteenth floor elevator. It's you're gonna miss me and it's and it's uh don't fear the reaper and it's something else, and it's replacements. I don't know. It's just so catchy. And what I was getting at is it seems like it's really easy for you. songs oh, it seems like you could write those in your sleep well i mean I, I it is easy for me but i'm not saying
2: it's good i'm not saying they're good songs i'm just saying yeah i mean i think after a while uh, certain things come more easily than others i never you know you probably we probably have discussed this before but i don't ever spend more than two hours writing a song i might spend more than two hours writing a string trio <laughs> but you know I'm not going to, I don't, I, I edit lyrics later sometimes, but, and this is not a philosophy or a some kind of brag or something. It, personally, the way it works for me, it's better that way. Um, because if I start intellectually constructing it, like this might be a good bridge, but I'm just not feeling what the bridge should be, then it starts to feel uh, rickety. And then lyrically, I want to have most of it right away. You know, or not right away, but it's mulling around your head. But by the time I actually sit down and write it, I want to have most of it. And then some of the uh, images or adjectives or you, you change things. And I want to edit it in that way. But I want to have the bulk of it fast. Because if I'm left to my own devices, you know, to ruin it, then that's what I'll do.
0: Well, you know, as I've gotten older, I have found that I've finally, but from a writing standpoint, I've finally, in the last like couple of years, I know what I can do well. Like I know, I know my love reverberation reflex. I know which one I've got. I know what I can do. I'm never going to write a pastoral novel. Like I'm not that guy.
2: Wordsworth. You can write about daffodils.
0: Yeah, I can't do that. I can't. I mean, I can barely, I can barely, you know, describe the house somebody lives in. So (laughs) I know, I know what I can do. And so what I've done is I've decided, you know, like not to get weird, but, but like between us, there's over a hundred years of living on this planet and there's not a hundred more. And so I kind of feel like, you know, all right, like I want to, I have books I want to write. I have, I have art I want to create. And I'm going to go with what comes easy to me because I trust it now more than I've ever trusted it. Because I I know I'm good at it, and I know what I'm not good at, and I don't really yeah. want to become somebody who I'm not going to be Hawthorne, and I don't want to work, I don't want to be Hawthorne. Um, so I guess my question to you is: Is there a, is there a reflex ever in you to go? I'm going to write twelve love reverberations and put together a trio and start start playing clubs like because that would be that would be easy i think
2: no there isn't i mean i i would rather just do part of this is that people listen to music now in a different way it's not necessarily the way that i like but it's a different way and they play music a different way and they record music in a different way most of it is not really my thing in terms of those processes uh a lot of music is textural music, which I love. But uh-huh. um, computers have kind of made less interplay with musicians. You know that that kind of thing is not totally dead, of course. But um, you know, you used to get in a room and and that was it. Uh, before you could fix things, <laughs> uh, you just had to. The the interesting thing about that, see, people say analog. They mean tape, but tape is just a tiny part of analog. So when they say, I love analog recording, I, I think they many people mean that they love tape rather than you know, a hard disk. But analog is a whole thing, a whole process where you don't have a lot of time, usually a lot of tracks and a lot of editing capability. You have all of those things really easily now. I mean, tuning vocals is a somewhat new thing quantizing which people don't concentrate as much on but you know the fixing of beats in every instrument including vocals uh, has made for these perfect sort of technically perfect uh, ways of recording and it also the audience comes to respect those things um, and they don't want to hear somebody saying off of key they're not used to it um, and so uh, that process wouldn't work for me. What does you ask the question about? Do am I tempted to do one of those things? I, I think about a live show or a recording, practically that musicians could do. Because I'd like to record live. You know, I didn't do it this time. I couldn't, um, but I want to record live, and to do that those songs you're talking about you need a lot of you need a bunch of those because i mean you can't get into a lot uh i mean with time consider and money considerations obviously you can there is such a thing as pet sounds so you can get into anything you want if you have the the resources but those days are kind of gone so for me um to construct a record or something might be not because it's easy or it would be popular but more like the band would sound good doing it, you know, like teaching songs with lots of chord changes and weird feels that can be rough. If you don't have a lot of time, and I've learned that the hard way, the whole, you know, the whole, uh, that outside the sun EP, mm. you know, was cut in one day. I mean, back to front, I mean, learning it too. And that's why it's not better.
0: <laughs> well of all i know that you have a vault of material how do you decide which are the ones that will be on the new album because there's a lot to Well, to since from. i
2: kind of feel like every record i've done is a failure other than the second carnival souls record which didn't come out and possibly one of the two azalea records um because i kind of want to hear myself changing something, you know, not just doing the last thing. Um, I don't decide. I write new songs. I don't pick old songs. I just write huh. new ones. All the songs on my new record I wrote the last, in the last year. All songs on Azalea I wrote that month or two months, uh, and so forth. I do have lots of old songs, and what I would need for that is a producer, like if I did a record with my friend, Rob Schnaff, um, because I trust him, I could throw a bunch of songs and just say, you know, what do you want me to do? I'll, I'll do these, but I don't want to be that person because you develop attachments to things for weird reasons, you know, and it kind of becomes difficult to like do things you were doing then and then try to do something new at the same time. So, I'm sure it doesn't sound new to other people. I have to interject. I think it probably sounds the same, but to me it might be a departure in some way. You know, sometimes I decide I'm doing songs for the weirdest reasons, you know, little, little bird on Dago Red. Yeah. You know why I did that? Put that song on the record. It's because it has a weird chord in it. (laughs) (laughs) That was the reason. And I thought I never use this chord. I kind of like the way it goes in the song. I'll use this song. That's,
0: that's, that's
2: my process there. There we go. It's a
0: good example. Are, are your, like, is, is your, <laughs> I'm making you sound like Prince, but in your vaults, I mean, are you, is your stuff recorded or is it just, is it just a, song? well, a lot
2: of it, you know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, some form as rough or as cheap, you know, I've, Yeah. Start started on cassettes. I have a lot of those. I have a computer. I record. I had a recording studio. You know, I did. It was more expensive to do it on tape, but yeah. Uh, Almost all my records start out these days. You know, as demos. And what I mean by that is, I don't mean. You know, demo used to kind of have the connotation that you hadn't finished it, Um, but for me, it's more like if you hear a song on one of my records, it's a very, very strong chance that I have never played it other than that one time. You know, I mean, I played it to myself on the couch, but that one recording is always almost always the first recording of it. <laughs> I don't record it again or even play live again. So that's it. You know, love reverberation is the one and only time we played that song. I think there's two takes of it. And we used one. And uh, I used the one that got better as it went instead of the one that got worse as it went. <laughs> uh, they both had problems. But the one, figured better figured better to get better as it goes. A little clunky in the first verse. And these are incredible trade secrets. We sucked playing the first verse. And then we started to get into, you can't blame anybody i ever play with cuz i never teach them anything you know it's always like oh it just goes like this go and you know then they are left to wonder what they would have done if they had rehearsal
0: yeah because didn't you tell me that for love reverberation like they learned it like 5 minutes before you started playing yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that captures it i mean that is definitely in keeping with like the beat generation right like that sort of ecstatic moment of creation um that's as close as you're gonna get well, if you're I, doing... mean, I would
2: love love for it to be something rapturous like that but for me it's more like uh the i have to guard myself against doing the wrong thing as we all do and i'm self-conscious as a singer for instance and so i only want to do a couple of takes because i not that they're perfect but I just only want to do a couple because it's going to start to get weird. Maybe weeks later, if it really is unusable, then I'm going to try a different one. Um, but in a row, I don't want to do 15 vocal. I know records are made that way all the time. Uh, hundreds sometimes of vocals, but I, and pasting it together and all that stuff. I, somebody else can do it and make me sound great. That's fine. But I can't do it because it gets me so distracted from the point of the music, you know? I just have to let it go off into the ether. Yeah. But I think that the thing you're talking about that I feel when I write, you know, songs is my favorite part of music, weirdly, is the minute that I think I have an idea for a song or a good lyric or something that I like. It may fade later and I say, what is this song? You know, stupid song. But when I'm doing it, uh, maybe it's a trick the brain plays on you, but you say, God, this is going to be, you know, going to be the first good song I've ever written. And you believe in the song. And, you know, I found out it happens with other people's songs too, because I worked a lot, you know, with songwriters recording. And you almost have to be, but you also are naturally, inclined to love what you're working on you know or otherwise you can't really do a good job so there's something in your brain chemistry in it at least for that amount of
0: time you're like this is the greatest (laughs) well Uh, but that's something that I found with musicians where like if someone's you know if you're supposed to interview somebody about the album that's coming out they they would rather talk about the album that that they're actually currently writing, but like they're already over it. Right. You know, like if, if someone comes, it's like, if a publicist sets me up with someone to talk to them about their new album, they, they don't really want to talk about it. They're, they're done, done with it. Well, also, you know, the, the interviews,
2: uh, present company accepted. Uh, I remember going for my first interview when I was a teenager on a radio station. Man, I was so disappointed. I was all ready to talk about (laughs) art and music. And, you know, I was just like dream come true. You know, it was Pennsylvania college. I can't remember. And uh, I was in some terrible band and, um, and, you know, I sat down and they were like, where are you guys from, (laughs) you know? And that was the most interesting question. (laughs) I was so disappointed. You know, I wanted to talk about art. Uh, I mean, that's just an egotistical thing, but uh, at the same time, there's a lot of arcane knowledge that is in music, and it makes, when you say that, it sounds kind of like it's this pompous thing you're trying to say you have this avenue. I don't mean that, but if you've ever you know been around like great musicians, they know all this shit they don't tell anybody. <laughs> And you hear a lot of stories that you never hear repeated, and you kind of accumulate uh, an attitude about things and learn things as a composite of the people that you've hung around. If you're lucky, you know, you hang around some pretty interesting people. Uh, and so, the the moment of creation thing, the the feeling where you're sort of connecting something or uh, pulling something out of the air. I think that's the best, the most transcendent feeling of it. You can also have a, a different kind of transcendent feeling. I think when you're playing live or even when you're just playing, but uh, those moments are tempered by the intellectual stuff as as they should be, but they can be really hard to grab. You know, making records is hard. Uh, I've seen people who can really have a lot of ability and there's something about the studio, they just can't give it up. It's hard to, I mean, you're just suddenly frozen. You're under a microscope. And I mean, it's better, it's better at home. It's better when you're doing it alone, but it's still the moment the red light goes on, you're like, fuck, I suck at this. What am I going to do? <laughs> uh, and before, you know, when the red light wasn't on, you were just a happy person who
0: likes to play music. Yeah. It's interesting because I do, I know what you mean. And I, and I feel like that sort of like these conversations that I have in in this, in this show, like, I feel like my goal with, with all of this is that it really is all one big conversation, you know, that like the thing you're talking about, about that sort of like the the thing, I don't know. It's like one continuous conversation about really the same thing. And right you
2: know, and and yeah and also all of art like as you know you know I do this blog on Mark Rothko right yeah and for years I avoided knowing anything about him personally because it's just kind of my stance that I'm not that interested music bios never did much for me I mean you know they're fun and the facts are fun but in terms of understanding music mostly yeah, I just don't need to know too much. I want to see the work, I guess. And for a long time growing up, I liked his paintings and I just didn't need or want to know about the person. And eventually this Rothka thing, the blogs, uh, and now the Instagram, they got big enough that I felt I had a responsibility to be able to answer questions better. So I started reading everything about him. Every Biography, every interview, interviews with his friends. He didn't write a lot himself or talk a lot himself. There's no film, so he's kind of a odd character. And at first, I thought I don't like this guy, you know, because he's a product of the '40s. He's uh, super pompous and talks about the artist and the, you know, the meaning, and it, it's a something of the time. But then, and I'm this is winding around to my point here, I realized that Rothka has this great thing, which is that he believes so strongly in just an idea. And even before an idea, the idea that he would get an idea that he thought and did nothing else until it worked. And when it worked for me and for, I think a lot of other people, it worked in a profound, profoundly successful way. And he was a super sensitive, you know, Erotic person, like, like, you know, you ever read about Allen Ginsberg and get the feeling like he would have been kind of a pain in the ass to be around? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Or Rothko, similar. And, but the thing that gets me that's inspiring about Rothko is his ego didn't enter in many ways that you think it would his art. He never did it for somebody. And that's because, very specifically, and I think this is a cool idea he had basically decided once he had figured out what he wanted to do, that it was beyond criticism, you know, that he believed it and he would try to do it. And the only standard was his only, his own feeling of successfully doing it. Other people to him were just people who didn't understand what he was trying to do. And there was no reason then to be influenced what they wanted. He was, and it, it took him so long and he started so late that it's actually a very inspiring story about somebody who was not a great academic artist finding a way to do something great, you know, against lots of odds. Uh, artistically, though, I don't mean, you know, running the marathon. Right. Which, but, but artistically, it, it, it really takes a lot of fidelity to whatever you want to do to
0: just keep pushing at it. Do you, do you think that in some ways you are Rothkoian? Because you have all, I mean, maybe there's something resonating about his own biography in the sense that, you know, your ego to me has always been something that like, for example, you seem like you're kind of camera shy. You keep a low profile. You're not, you're not a guy who is, you don't seem like you have an ego problem. You know, you, you whereas well, a lot of people, I think all musicians, I know, but like, but you're, but you're not like, you're not, um, you know, you, you're not Axl Rose, you know, you definitely have, were. you preferred the shadows over the light. And which gets back to what we were talking about at the top of the conversation. And in many ways, like your fidelity to your own art, and you putting the art before the persona seems like it was always been a very conscious and comfortable place for you to exist. Am I, am I interpreting?
2: No, I mean, I'm, I'm a bass player. So the first thing you do is stand behind somebody whose people are looking at. <laughs> I think I like, I used to like that. Um, I mean, I don't know. Part of it is that I have you know, misgivings and anxieties, and it's easier for me to not have them if I'm not kind of putting myself out there, but also you know, you only have so much talent and you can't say what it is. And you sort of owe it to people to, or, you know, to yourself, to try to keep working on what you're doing as long, you know, if, if you're gonna do it until you drop, then just do it till you drop. Um When you're working on somebody else's record, I think it's kind of like, it's their dream, you know, cause I criticize a lot of music, but you know, if you write a song, that you are sincere about, you know, I love you <laughs> because I love that spirit and that impulse, you know, that people have to put something across. Right. Um, and, and so uh, I guess, you know, you're right kind of, um, but I'm interested, in, I like working. So uh, in a way, I mean, lazy, but you know what I mean? I like to work. So when I don't have anything to do, yeah, you know, I sit down and I write some music and I enjoy it. And it takes me out of any idea about what it's for or, uh, and I'm just very comfortable with that. And the more, I mean, it's again, hard to make a living, but the more I can do that, uh, it's just always been the enemy to try to think about what people want. I mean, you know, I, I'd love to please them. I'd love for all my friends to say, Oh, it's is your best, right? I mean, it would feel great. But if I start
0: out trying to do that, what am I going to do? Something stupid. Did you, was your plan always art? Like when you, you went to college in Pennsylvania, is that what you did?
2: Oh, I didn't go to college.
0: Uh, no, I didn't you, go to you didn't college. Even bother. Yeah. So uh, No,
2: my, my plan was always art. My plan was to be a painter or an illustrator or something, you know, visual art and until I was about 16 and uh, music seemed social I didn't, art was very solitary. Yeah. And so I got a bass. My parents, well, in those days, your parents rented you a bass <laughs> to see if you would give it up. If you were really serious about it. Um, and it was more expensive than buying one usually, but anyway, my parents rented me a bass guitar, which is what I wanted. And I played with some friends and uh, yeah, I uh, I stopped painting and I started playing and, that was that
0: were your parents because your parents were really cool from what you've said about them on online and stuff i mean were they pretty supportive of your they were yeah yeah
2: i mean they were kind of directionless about how to do things but um my father my my grandmother my mother's side was a, a pianist as a professional uh uh and she gave it up and you know, worked it at Aetna, but she had studied with Ernest Bloch and these people and uh, uh, Benjamin Britten. you know, at Hart School of Music. She was the first person in her family to go to college. They were Italian. Uh, and uh, so, you know, my grandmother would sit down and play for us when we were kids. And um, and then on my dad's side, you know, my one uncle was a writer and a cartoonist for the New Yorker, James Stevenson. He wrote
1: right.
2: tons of, books, children's books. Uh, he's an illustrator. And my grandfather, uh, his father, my dad's father was an architect. And he designed, among other things, uh, you know, the team, the head of the team for FDR drive in New York, which I think they would have torn down except New York is too small and they can't. But uh, he did things for the world in the 39 World's Fair and stuff. So he was a, a pretty successful architect. And uh, my family, I think, because of those people, probably were i mean they weren't wild you know my parents didn't like give me acid and a plane ticket to europe you know they weren't they were they were old school democrats you know my dad was general counsel for the peace corps that's why we moved to dc that's why i was born in dc is bill moyers recommended my dad as counsel for the peace corps because he was a lawyer and uh we moved to dc and that's where i was born So there's a very Washington way to, to get into things in DC. Uh, We live next to door to Mondale, Walter Mondale. Jeez. That's very DC thing, you know, very in in LA. It's like, I live next door to Kevin Spacey. Well, may hopefully not Kevin Spacey at this point, but you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Well, when you decided to sort of like forego, um, college where your parents because it sounds like your parents were very educated right I, mean, were they okay? oh, I think they
2: would have liked for me to go to college yeah um but I I just didn't I didn't know what I was going to do exactly but I certainly I I thought about going to music school but I'm not a very organized person in terms of the kind of music that I would have been learning at music school I mean now I'd love to write or do write a, a string quartet but I do it in a very haphazard and clunky way, because I'm not musically educated. And I I don't think I would have done well. I don't like structure. Um, I have really bad ADD, as I'm sure you can tell by talking to me. Uh, And the way that it manifests with music, and I, I think it's the reason I like the studio, frankly, is because it's a lot harder for me to concentrate on one thing than a bunch of things at once. And in the recording studio, you know, you're always looking at a meter over here and meter over there and there's the fader and you got to watch this level. And I'm perfectly happy doing that. That makes sense. (laughs) And I have more trouble writing because yeah, I write some mostly poetry. Uh, And luckily it's a short form. I never could write a fucking novel, man. I mean, I would love to, but the amount of structure and sitting and one thing and looking at a page, I start to, you know, My brain starts to turn off and it wanders in that way uh, to circumlocution, you know, uh, when I would read, when I didn't realize when I was a kid, I would read something and I found it interesting. And very quickly, I would find that I wasn't reading it anymore. I was just thinking about it and thinking about it was not unproductive, but, you know, you start to grow up, you start to read the Russians. How long can you go before you forget their names, <laughs> right? You know, how many Tolstoy has, how many, you know, Russian names you're probably not gonna remember even if you're paying attention. Um, so I ended up learning how to read books on, um, uh, you know, they say that Joyce, you know, cause he had failing eyesight, you could sort of make a case for Joyce growing more dependent on recollections and sounds. By the time his career sort of winds down, he's talking about conversations and stuff. And uh, it was interesting. Somebody suggested that how many artists uh, in history are influenced by some kind of malady or disability, uh, including the fact that Rothko was very nearsighted and painted very large and very close to the paintings. And that's how he wanted you to look at them because that's the way that he was working on them. Uh, and, you know, I'm, it's not like a, a, a secret. It's nothing bad, but you just wonder, you know, somebody Beethoven can't hear or Joyce can't, you know, can't read these things start to affect how people produce their work. So I think my, ADD is kind of, unfortunately, it's always hard for me to sit down with a guitar and try to practice like a million people I know, you know, 12 hours a day. I could never, I don't pick up a
0: guitar, you know, unless I have a very good reason to. How has your, in terms of anxiety, in terms of mental health, like how do you, how do you deal with that? I mean, now, how do you sort of patrol it and, and keep it. Um, I'm a hermit. That's out of control.
2: That's, uh,
3: yeah. I mean, I, I do I don't want,
2: I don't want to be a hermit. I hope not always to be a hermit. Um, and I think, you know, I don't want to, boy, there's nothing more boring to me than pandemic conversation, believe me. <laughs> uh, but I will say that I don't think it was helpful, uh, the pandemic. Not, not because I, I was already isolated. So not that big a deal, but the, uh, there's a level of anxiety about it that kind of crept in after a while, you know, to, as it went on and on and on, you're worrying about people you care about and not knowing how things are going to be. And I think it, it made me more, you know, isolated. Uh, I deal with it by not working as much as I'd like to. I think if I didn't have such grave uh, anxiety problems, I would work more like I did in the old days where i'd be more willing to travel or it's really about meeting people you know and you can't blame people for not calling you up when they haven't seen you in a million years right um so i think i've suffered sort of maybe you know or maybe just nobody wants to work with me but (laughs) i also could have (laughs) suffered in the way that uh maybe i have a few compatriots and collaborators and i mean you know i'm busy i just a little bit better if I was doing different things. And I think that the anxiety really plays in the last five or 10 years, you know. Uh, And things happen, you know, it happens to everybody. But things happen, people die, you know. I can't tell you how my dog dying was like the worst thing that ever happened to me. And uh, some people would find that silly to say, but truly... Like something i still getting over or won't ever get over. Right. Uh, we, we were very joined at the hip, you know, and my parents died, and, you know, all these things are things that happen to everybody. But it, uh, when you combine them with other anxieties, there's nothing like the anxiety of, you know, someone you love and you don't know if they're going to get out of the hospital, that kind of anxiety. And I think it heightened all of my anxieties because what you're trying to do. Like, you know, the sad story of my dog was he developed a heart condition. And I just, every day I woke up and I thought, what can I do to prolong his life, you know? But then eventually you fail. Right. And it's hard to take the failure of having really tried to keep your friend alive, you know, and and then they die. So I think those things kind of pile up and become... Difficult to deal with. Although I know for more uh, well-adjusted people, you know they keep things in perspective better. But anyway, well, that's my story.
0: Well, I mean, I you know, like Walter was just ridiculously cute, and I, I you know I, I followed you guys on, on on social media, and I remember <laughs> when he died. It just like I was devastated. I mean, it's like
2: well, he he was a popular dog. He was well because I had him in the era when I was reporting a lot of bands. All the bands knew him. And um, he's a very friendly, good judge of character kind of dog. You know, he's a weird mix. He's a Basset Hound, German Shepherd. Uh, uh, well, a bunch of other things, but, you know, that Basset Hound, German Shepherd mix. I always thought he looked like a lab, but yeah. it was the that combination that made him look that way.
3: He and, did look um, like
2: a lab. You're right. He did. Yeah. And so Walter knew all the bad. Walter ended up barking on many, many records I made for people. <laughs> you can hear him somewhere, you know, either shaking his ears or barking. But everybody loved. I really, he was one of those
0: easy for me to say, but he was one of those dogs. Everybody loved him. Well, it also makes me think, though, about the cost of love, right? I mean, because I'm. I'm one of those people and I know it's going to sound strange, but I figure we're, we're, we're here. So why not? But like, I love my cat as much as I've loved another, like a woman, you know, like I, like to me, there's their, their family members, their friends, their um, they're important figures in your life, but there's a cost to love and the cost to love is loss. And you know, like I said, I was joking about you and I having hundred years of experience on this planet. But like, I've had profound losses of family members in my life uh, die, like profound, and um, and pets, of course, and all of it. I've I've had the same same losses you've had, and I, I'm no better at it. But it also it also doesn't make me feel like uh, you know that love is a risk you shouldn't take. You know what I mean? Like it's, it does yeah. seem in a weird way worth it, even though you're going to get fucked in the end.
2: Yeah. I, I well, I think that's, I mean, I think what you've described is kind of a human condition. Uh, you can't do without things. It, it's like, see, I used to think people wanted to put out records because they had big egos, but that's sometimes true. But didn't realize when I started out that people want to put out records because it's a very human thing to want to be communicated with uh, back both ways, you know, and it's not necessarily that you want your audience to buy some version of you and think you're cool or good looking or something. Part of it is that, you know, you wrote a song for somebody to hear, you want somebody to hear it and react to it. it. It's very much putting yourself in the, i mean it's an impossible role but what i really want and everybody really wants i think is is to have the same effect you know on somebody else that the velvet underground had on you you know or bob dylan had on you or john coltrane had on you you know you you want to do that back yeah (laughs) it's impossible i mean those people are geniuses but uh that feeling uh, so many times I got when I heard something, you know, amazing. Uh, I remember you remember Dylan's record of blues covers world gone wrong. Oh yeah. He wrote those great liner notes for him, you know, in a way that nobody else would like very poetically, but, but accurately because he knew the music so well. And I remember hearing that and I thought I was really blown away by it because i had really previously felt like only people from the era you know black musicians from the could do that music in the 20s and 30s could do that music justice uh and he did this great thing i thought i want to be that person when i'm older too of course now i am older but (laughs) i i thought listen fucking bob dylan man you know he's like a he's like singing the blues who knew you know (laughs) yeah yeah he he just has so much feeling in those songs at some time more than his own songs you know at a certain time not all his career but when you think about the records he was making in the 80s there the early 90s and he doesn't sound so into them but man when he plays you know arthur mcbride or something or delia's version of delia uh he's like got his whole thing into it, his whole his whole feeling into it. That's really beautiful. I love it when people do that. I mean, and that's the Towns Van Zandt thing. You know, I, I hate to have conversations about Towns Van Zandt. If you get into anybody from Texas, they were Towns Van Zandt's best friend <laughs> and they saw him over at the TikTok Inn and well, it's a conversation that goes on for weeks. But, you know, there's something about him that he, I remember he said once, you know, that he was just trying to write a good song and he hoped to do one in the future. And I thought, that's that's what we all want to do. Although he's a lot closer than most of us. But I always get that feeling with him. It's a cemented feeling. It's this, uh, Bob Dylan talks about the way that lightning Hopkins like carried himself, that he wanted to carry himself like lightning hopkins carried himself not sounded like you know it, the concept is a kind of a more sophisticated concept it's a bearing you know it's like orson welles said that uh there's a word for king's actor it means it's not the best actor but it's the one who has to play the king and that's what he was and you know once you hear that you know it's absolutely true about orson welles he does have to play the king you know He can't play the guy who's selling cigarettes on the corner. He's going to be terrible, (laughs) but he, but not many people can play the King. So lucky, you know, and, uh, you start to look up to people that have gracefully, or, you know, made a career for themselves and are, uh, I mean, listen to muddy waters to the end, you know, there's nothing missing from muddy waters from the beginning to the day he dies. (laughs) And I think that is a real success, you know. But it's this very having trouble articulating it, but you know, when you hear Towns of Anzant, you hear this great economy. um And just in the songwriting part of it, it, it's really stripped down to very little, but it's so effective. And even his singing is limited, you know, but he makes it work so profoundly. that he's really doing, you know, what somebody like Lightning Hopkins would do. I mean, he achieved <laughs> his dream because you know Lightning was his idol, but I mean, he's kind of there, you know.
0: It's also like Hemingway, where I've always loved Hemingway because of the economy, and you know, like, you look at Towns Van Zandt or you look at Hopkins, or you look at Hemingway, and it looks like <laughs> it looks like you can do that. You know, you you, you show an eighth grader, a Hemingway, like take a a page from A Farewell to Arms or something and they go, fuck, I could do this, but they can't. Like it's simple and it's stripped down, but it takes a really long time to be able to dispense with the architecture that usually gets in the way. Like that simplicity is hard fought.
2: Right, yeah, that's a good point. I, I think that the thing is that things change. You know, even in Shakespeare, Shakespeare's complain in his plays, you know, the people from the city are coming to fuck things up and uh, nobody likes outsiders. You know, nobody likes the eventuality of the new time and musicians have that problem too. Yeah. And one of the things about music is that, you know, it's different now and it has a different social context. Uh, I may not relate to it as well as I did to older music, even music before I was born, But that's also me, you know, somebody else thinks that, you know, if I like Nick Drake and to somebody else, Pete Yorn was the new Nick Drake and they like Pete Yorn, who's Nick Drake, you know? And then the next person, I don't know who would be the new one. Duncan Sheik comes along and Duncan Sheik's the new Nick Drake. And then I'm not belittling any of these people. I'm saying that for a, a person who likes that kind of thing, you know, it counts who came first and in they're in their listening. It doesn't matter if there's somebody before. Uh, and people move along with music changing and the values of music changing. So uh, we all have to accept that the world of, you know, music the way it once was is entirely different now. It doesn't mean you have to do it any other way than you're doing it.
0: I do believe that that the conversation we're having, where you look at the Velvet Underground and Big Star, and you think like, they sold more albums in the '80s because of REM, right. you know, like REM name-checking them or whoever. Um, you know, like, I didn't know anything about the Velvet Underground until I heard REM do Pale Blue Eyes. You know, when I was when I was fifteen well, wow, or sixteen. Yeah, that's interesting. Right. I
2: didn't. I'd never heard of them before because you know the third Velvet Underground record was one of the. Three or four most important records of my life because i heard it when i way before i started playing music my my sister went to wesleyan she had a, a schizophrenic roommate nice guy i mean I don't, schizophrenic sounds like i'm trying to label him but he was apparently schizophrenic and he had the third Velvet underground record and he played it a lot when i was visiting her and i was whatever you know 14 or something and uh I had never, you know, I know people say this about everything, but for me, I had never heard music like that. I just, nothing, you know what I mean? For one thing, you didn't hear like a rock band playing in this way where they're trying to play their instruments. It was more like one sound, you know, just the song, no parts. No, I mean, there are parts, but the feeling of it was that everybody's playing the song and not trying to play their instrument. And it also has Lou Reed's really energetic and funny and exuberant delivery on it. And I remember exactly the day he played the second side first. So beginning to see the light is how I thought the record went for years. But that song is so driving, you know.
0: I mean, it's kind of like with uh, I don't know with Van Gogh. We're where sort of like people found him later, <laughs> you know what I yeah, mean? Like yeah. I kind of feel that that. That's the sort of eternal heartbeat of art in, in the sense that like nothing will get lost. If, if, co- if the conversation of art keeps going on through either whether it's influence, like you're the Duncan Sheik thing, or it's just through whatever, I feel like if it's, if it's created, it will be found um, through, through the conversation of art and through the conversation of conversations about art. Yeah, I, mean, um, I
2: actually wish that things, if you want to know the real truth, I wish that things were a little more difficult for people <laughs> because yeah. I think that convenience has, uh, I have an illustration of this, if you don't mind, since we're not actually, I thought we were going to be doing this live and then I was going to watch how much I rambled like a fucking <laughs> moron, but I figure you're going to, out of old friendship for me, not going to make me sound too stupid. Um, but But here's the thing about the internet and technology, and it's great, it's amazing, but it, it, here's the thing I've been thinking about, which is that um, on one hand, if you go to the Museum website, you can get, uh, they will mail you a high resolution picture of any public domain painting in their collection for free <laughs> that you can do anything you want with, and that's like 50,000 paintings that you're never going to see, you know, probably, unless you're over there. And that's the internet, man. I mean, it's just amazing the resource that you have to do things, to see things, to get music, everything. But unfortunately, one thing I learned from recording is that if you give most people uh, an out, they take it, (laughs) I guess it's human nature, you know? And, the easier things become, the more disposable they are. And when they're disposable, they're not important anymore. And one of the things about art is that it needs to be important to somebody. Um, It gives it life, you know, it inspires others and somebody has to take it up. And my favorite illustration of this is my favorite because it's personal, but I will just tell you, my favorite record, possibly in the world, is the 1931 Skip James recordings, which, of course, is a compilation of 78s. And there's nothing heavier or deeper to me than that record in in the feeling. And I will get these numbers slightly wrong, but roughly, Skip James' best-selling record was Devil Got My Woman. He sold 500 copies of it. Of those 500 copies, there's about probably 20 that survived. Of those 20, there's about five that are playable. So the incredible music of Skip James could so easily have been lost forever with five fragile shellac records being the only document of his best-selling and one of his greatest songs, Double Got My Woman. Uh, And people were so moved by the music that they transported it and found it and cleaned it up and transcribed it over and over again, trying to get it better to bring this music to people because they believed in it, because it was important. And if you then I fast forward to the internet <laughs> uh. and you go to YouTube and there's like some guy in a fedora saying like, uh, yeah, man. So today we're going to learn how to play like Skip James. Uh, there's a lot to unpack. So let's dive in. <laughs> You know, it's like, you can't teach. (laughs) Skip James music is like a dream. You know how they say psychedelic music, like psychedelic rock. A lot of good music is psychedelic music, you know, and somehow really the best music is to me, like all psychedelic. It's producing something other than just hearing it. You know, you're feeling it with your other senses and that music is just, it cannot be captured and i've got nothing against music education or learning you know how to play or somebody telling you oh gary davis played in this tuning or whatever but you can't just turn art into information and that's what the internet does and it's a problem you know there's 60,000 songs i heard uploaded to spotify every single day and just nobody gives a shit about any single one of them because they didn't have to work to get them And I know that explanation sounds kind of like Republican or something. But what I mean is that when you put something in, when you want something enough to go find it, you really give it a fair shake. records that I hated, I listened to over and over again just to see if I had wasted my money. And records that I loved, of course, I listened to endlessly. But the limited resources and the money it cost to buy albums when we were kids, meant that you really gave things a shot and i think it was good and i, I think it's the same thing with recording you know you get your friends in a recording studio before computers and if you sounded like shit that's kind of what it was going to sound like i mean you could do some things but you know what i mean oh yeah you had to live with it and if that was fine with you that was great but you, it was kind of you and now that they can you know just fix anything uh people don't have to face that fear. And so that fear doesn't drive them to do anything like be more creative or learn a way around it or learn to play an instrument better or whatever. Uh, Some people, but the music business, I think, has suffered a little bit because of those, you know, the perception of things is that they're not worth anything? Nothing is worth anything. That's kind of what the internet teaches you. It's all disposable. There's all more and more and more, and I hate to see that happen with a Skip James. You know, I hate to see somebody listen to five seconds of it and fast forward. You know, or skip over the next one because it's just so worthy. You want, you know, I know it's just a personal feeling, um, but you'd like it not to just be completely without reason. And you know, I know Jim used to feel this way. He he was going to cover a Furry Lewis song, you know, Furry Lewis, the Memphis sure, artist, who Jim knew, and uh, his maybe his kids were going to cover it. Maybe North Mississippi all source are going to cover it. So he calls me one day. He said, "I searched on the internet and I found a million copies of this thing." I used to have to—he's complaining, you know. I used to have to go find records where they didn't have any records, and and then he finally it in frustration he says i'm allowed to do this song because i played at furry lewis's funeral <laughs> which i totally didn't know <laughs> but you know he felt like he had earned the right to play furry lewis music he had done he had put in his time and i'm not saying you gotta you know kiss the feet uh but music's an amazing what can you say the stupid thing everybody knows music's an amazing thing the amount of good music is staggering i mean i i kind of stopped collecting records out of poverty but what happened was it dawned on me one day that i like all my records and if i started and listen if i listened to five a day before i got back to the first one again it would be f- five years and I thought I can't buy any more records. Right, you got enough. I, I, I just, you know, I have too much. Because it's a mania, because there's so much good music. You even develop this kind of sense, like you almost think you're gonna know what something sounds like without hearing it. You ever do right. that? You know, the look of it, you're like, that, that's good. I can tell that's a good record, the way yeah. it looks. Well, the photography, everything.
3: You know?
0: Yes, that was easier in the 80s where it was so tribal. Where yeah. you could you could tell there was a certain look to a four AD album or to a twin tone album. I mean, I just discovered. Do you remember the Neats? Yeah, yeah. Holy cow! I just got that Ace of Hearts compilation from the the early work. Uh, I don't, I don't have it, but yeah, I've heard a few of their songs. I mean, those guys were fantastic. Um, and I, I didn't know how good they were. I I always heard them. I didn't know I didn't know they were good. They're better than good. They were, and how did I miss them for forty years or whatever well,
2: also stuff's good in a context, you know, like yeah you know development a lot of things are developmental. Let's not totally knock being snide and shitty about bands because it's kind of a thing the way you develop friendships, you know it's a taste, it's like all oh, these bands all suck, they're fucking have big hair, fuck these people and and you know that's not true. <laughs> there are bands with big hair that are good, but you kind of get friends that way, Get t- developing taste is like a rite of passage. It's not totally useless. You know, it's a social thing to get into a group of people. We all like cool things, right? right. That's what you say when you're young. We all like cool things. Uh, and so it's not bad, but then later you got to open up your mind a little bit. You know, sometimes there's bands, I totally reject it because of style. Like a band would have a very new wavy kind of singing, which I don't love, you know, or uh, synthesizer based things in a kind of uh John Fox solo record kind of way, you know? And at the time I didn't like it, but now I like them, you know, cause they're so weird really. And one thing they are is some of them is really stripped down some of that early new wave, you know, not really my thing, but it's like nothing, you know, it's like that early, well, suicide being the greatest example of it's nothing, you know, it it's amazing how good it is because it's nothing it's so bare and raw no one of the punk rock kids liked it you know i mean it sounds like it was
0: recorded in a bathroom <laughs> i know i know it's, it's i know i know and there's something it's great also, music it's great you it's know great. it's a great hybrid music I mean, but God that's something... rick
2: okasic for letting them open for the cars
0: oh man which is so <laughs> cool but there's something about being you know things being a hard fought like I remember we here in the Bay Area, we got into Jonathan Richmond. Um, we didn't know about the Modern Lovers. We just got into his solo stuff. He would come out. He would tour here. We got into him. And then we reverse engineered somehow. This is like in 86, 85. And we, we heard that that Modern Lovers album existed and we wanted it. And you know the one with, with the, the classic one, right? The one one with right. Girlfriend and She Cracked in hospital. And so we went to go find Girlfriend, it. What a, what a great song. What a great song. And we went to go find it and we couldn't find it. We went to like six record stores. And then it was like, finally, we found it in the seventh one. And it was like, we literally felt like, you know, it, it was hard fought. An, another example is, you know, you'd have two albums in your hand in 1987 and you had 12 bucks in your pocket. You can only buy one. And you're making like this, you are it's almost like you're trying to figure out is it the red wire or the black wire that I cut? So the bomb doesn't go off. Like, this is a big decision, you know? Yeah. And you would stand there for 45 minutes going like, I mean, the long riders, they look pretty cool, but what is this? Like, or, or green on. I, mean, red. I could, you know, they're
2: only personal, but, but I got very lucky because I grew up in an era of, of good record stores and I got, actually great recommendations from people who worked at record stores you know things that i realize now were really smart considering you give them limited information about what you like i right. remember going into one in dc and uh telling this woman who's you know i was 12 or something that i had the Harder of they come and and what else was like that <laughs> you know <laughs> like what else is like this Harder They Come record? I just really loved it. I wanted to know. And she, you know, pointed me to a couple of good Bob Marley and Weathers live night at the, you know, 1975, the London show. And, uh, you know, nothing crazy, but good, solid, and it worked on me, you know. Uh, it, here Come the Warm Jets, which is one of my other, like, of the f- most important records to me. Uh, you know, I'm not sure what I think I knew Eno from Roxy Music or something, and I was taking a gamble on this weird-looking record. (laughs) And uh, Eno, it just was a really mind-blowing experience because his songs were, like I said about the Velvet Underground, just oriented to the song and not to the playing. And so he's using all these unconventional but fairly simple ways to make this great variety of tuneful songs uh in abstract you know somewhat abstract way you know the, they'll have like a fuzz bass solo or you know a chorus of people singing a coda that goes on longer than the song. that's what i did on this record i it was very you know influenced uh because he's got all those cool little intros and outros got him obsessed with those
0: yeah there, there's there's I like the idea of working for something. It also reminds me of that. I don't know if you ever saw It Might Get Loud. You ever see that movie? I did. Remember when Jack White talks about how like, I actually really liked this moment. where I have mentioned it before, but I really liked it where he said like, you know, I know that I, you know, I go play this piano part and I have to get back to the mic and I know it takes seven seconds to get there. So I'll put stuff in the way. So I'll have to, so I'll have to work harder to get there. <laughs> Because it'll mean more when I get there. I mean I, I thought that was a really cool thing to say. I don't know too much about Jack, why well, I haven't spent much time with his music. Um, but I've liked what I've heard and I think and I feel like he's a good student of of music history. But I just thought that was a really cool thing. You gotta work for well, it. I a think
2: he's bit. having a great post-success I mean, He's obviously still successful, but you know, post-white stripes career because uh, I think his thing is cool, you know, magazines and he, he wants record companies to have pressing plants again and you know you can ascribe any kind of meaning you want to people's motivations but to me those are all good things he wants you know the record business back in the positive way um and because there are i mean there's value to a lot of different kinds of music and uh people now it's wild what they know like everybody knows who mulatto sake is you know and and that's just something i don't know 10 or 20 years ago you wouldn't only nerds <laughs>
3: you know yeah I know. and now
2: everybody it's like oh yeah want to yeah which is great because it's great great music but when trump came in i thought now is the time man we're going to get the new marvin gay we're going to get the new punk rock protest music because it's an impressive yeah. time and, and you know we didn't get it uh because The social context for music is different than it used to be. And you know, I don't know what you're putting on this interview, but I can say that I hate saying these things because it always sounds like kind of like, oh, you gotta work harder, you know, it's like some sort of libertarian feeling, or or oh, music used to be cool. And I don't really genuinely feel that way. I, I do have a a love for lots of you know, music all around the world from all different times. Um, but in my lifetime i've heard lots of things that were new and totally blew me away uh, including things like hip-hop and certain kinds of electronic music um, but the social context of music is just different in 78 with the songs in the key of life is that when songs in the key of life is i believe that's right yeah 76 or 78 anyway in dc i know stevie was big but I walked into discount record and books, and you remember that the cover is orange. Oh yeah. And it was packed. It was like a Wes Anderson movie. Everybody had that record. There were no there were no other records that anybody was carrying in that store, and the store was crowded and they were lined up. And it is a great record, but socially in the context it was an important record to own, not just musically, you know, and I think that's different than it used to be. I think that idea like in art or America, this is what's happening. So you must listen to it. I think that's changed a little bit. I think there are certain bands like public enemy, I think had some of that, you know, I think bands do come along not so much here, but the clash had had it. Um, But music in that social like as an important part of how society develops, I think that's changed a lot. I think people feel that most music is background music, even if it's great music, you know, I'm not slamming it by saying background music, but the way they listen is with an ear to doing something else at the same time. And that's fine, you know, but music had this big political thing that people talk about but now there's like generations of people who haven't i think lived through music having that type of influence on their lives uh you know it's had a big influence on fashion um and certain aspects of life but like politically important i don't know you know i didn't hear it during the trump era i heard good records but i didn't hear like the one that was gonna bring the Capitol down you know
0: oh no i mean i i think that like maybe maybe american idiot would have been the the most high profile protest song of maybe the bush administration um i i'm with you i thought that 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 kind of oppressive regime would have activated the activist and i thought there'd be i mean i think you you probably hear it in hip-hop but it wasn't but it wasn't really broadcast in a in a major way um you well, I this? kind of thought that, you know, that year,
2: was, I mean, they're not the same year, but when Pimpa Butterfly came out. Yeah. And then uh, the D'Angelo finally. Oh, yeah. <laughs> finally, really. I thought those two records maybe were going to be the start, you know, because they're major artists and good artists. I thought maybe those were going to be the start of a new kind of movement, but I didn't really feel like that happened. I like Jadena, but I mean, I, you know,
0: even he sort of isn't so focused on something like that no and that would have been like what 2014 2015 somewhere in there maybe earlier but um hey, hey i'll plug something not of mine of course yeah Would i uh you know i think the
2: people had this thing uh with the best record of the 2000s or maybe it was the best record of the 2000s up until 2010 but anyway i would like to weigh in on this because nobody asked me
3: yeah.
2: what's the best record of the 2000s I will tell you the headphone masterpiece by Cody Chestnut. I don't know it. Well, Cody Chestnut isn't I, I thought of it because it's Angela because he doesn't make many records, and I think he turned Christian or something, and he he made a pretty fine record a few years ago, but the headphone masterpiece is like a neo soul type of record that's hugely long and recorded, I think, at his mother's house. And you know Cody Chestnut because that's his song that The Roots did, The Seed. Oh, yeah. Okay, him. That record is, is right on the cusp. I think it's 2000. And what's interesting about it is that, you know, from my perspective of, you know, kind of songwriter thing, it's just the strongest record. You know, he's a, just a very, he has all these cool ideas and it's executed in this really great way. And it's really sincere and original and inventive. But also, he's just a fucking great songwriter. And that is missing from, you know, a lot of things. And that is the best record. <laughs> that's my, uh, nobody cares, including Cody Chestnut, but that's the best record of 2000,
0: to me. Yeah, that was, it was a, It's a double album, right? Yeah, it's a double CD, yeah. I rem- Now I remember it. Yeah, I never heard it, though. Um, it, starts, it starts off with, like, a poem. <laughs> yeah, that's what kind of record it is. starts with a poem. <laughs> yeah, you know where I – now I saw him, I think, on Jules Holland. I think he has a performance on there. Yeah. Um, I because...
2: I don't know anything about the
0: dude. I Yeah.
2: I, got the, I get the feeling like he was fucked up and then he found, you know, God or something. And, of course, he's amazingly talented. Um, but I don't know if he could recreate, if anybody could recreate the feeling of that first record, it's like that home thing where you're so good, but you're just making recordings out of whatever you have, you know? And I think recordings, especially the first time you do them, they have that feeling about them. You can't get again, you know, it's just like all of a person's great ideas in a sort of high concept, low execution way. It's just an amazing. uh Amazing record.
0: Yeah, the um, a lot of those, a lot of stuff that sort of falls through the cracks like that is really interesting because I think like even someone like D'Angelo, who's so reclusive and so just ridiculously talented, um, I like the idea of them of these guys kind of controlling the flow and not and not making twenty albums. You know, there's something kind of interesting about that um, where there's a there's a kind of like there's a a paucity of material you know Um, Yeah, i mean
2: although as we sort of said about the replacements conversation the uh more and more i think sometimes you just kind of got to do your your it is dictated what you must do at the moment you might not like it and uh you know i might have wanted to write a Buzzcocks record or i might have wanted to write you know a very serious uh you know i don't know William Bosinski record or something. But instead, you know, I wrote a bunch of songs and it's just, you know, they're a particular thing that I had in mind. No, I didn't have them actually have them in mind because I wasn't planning on doing a record in my bedroom. But when I did have to do that, uh, for one thing, I played a lot of keyboards, which you'll hear, uh, not something I usually do. <laughs>
0: Well, one thing that you do usually do is make brilliant records, and uh, buddy, you've done it again. So, um, you got to come back on the show. There's so much more to talk about. What will we talk about next time?
2: Yeah, next time we can talk about, you know, who knows. After this time, <laughs> There's, listen,
0: it's it's an end, I have endless things to,
2: to
1: bring what, what up. What
0: was your what was your favorite acid trip? It'll start to get yeah. Oh, let's. I I do want to hear about that actually. <laughs> Okay, Um,
3: man. Well, thanks.
0: Hey, Uh, brother, good to to hear your voice, and uh, we'll chat. Yeah, let me know. the best philip stevenson not only one of my all-time favorite musicians he's one of my all-time favorite guys and uh, i'm really really humbled at the fact that i get to call him a friend uh listen nightworldrecords.bandcamp.com is where you need to go to find out what's going on with philip stevenson and uh, the bands that he puts out on night world records now The new album, A Complete History of Dreams, bear with me here because there's a lot of information and I want you to have it all. You got a couple of ordering options and whatever way you go, you're not going to be disappointed. All right, you can pre-order it all. On CD, pre-order it now. It's three CDs and a handmade book with a full color illustrated booklet plus downloads, okay? You can also then go... For the Complete History of Dreams, Box Set Deluxe, which is CDs, plus the digital album. Only a hundred copies, I think. Uh three CDs, DVD, cassette, handmade book with hand-dyed end papers, each one unique with a booklet. One piece of original art is included, plus extra surprises. You can pre-order that package right now, or pre-order the digital album, or pre-order the record. Vinyl set, which is going to be stunning. It's going to be a gorgeous, gorgeous, like a museum piece that you're going to want in your collection. It's only limited to like 300 copies. So get your copy of the vinyl or the digital album or the CDs, the cassette, the thing. There's so many things that you could do. Just go to nightworldrecords.bandcamp.com. And uh, it'll it'll walk you through all of the options that you have. Uh, go to alexgreenonline.com, see what's going on with me. Not many options. You can buy my books. I guess those are options. Um, but, uh, well, there is a new book coming out, which I will be talking about. So get ready for that. I'll be relentlessly self-promoting. Right now, all I'm going to say is there's a new book. It will be coming out. And... Uh, It'll be coming out in tandem, by the way, with my pal Suki Jones' new book. So, And she'll be on the podcast. There's so much stuff to talk about, so much news to give you. Is it too much or is it not enough? Maybe it's not enough. I don't know. Uh, bombshellradio.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with our radio station. How do we stay on the air 365 days a year? Well, stop by and check out our programming, and the answer to that question will reveal itself to you, I I think. I don't know. Uh, follow me on Twitter, at Embers Editor, or follow me on Instagram, at Embers Podcast, or email me, editor, at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. You can also do all three of those things if you like, whatever you're comfortable with. Speaking of comfort, what streaming service are you comfortable with? I was going to say, what streaming service are you comfortable with? That's a whole other question. Maybe we don't need to answer that right now. But what streaming service are you into? Whatever you're into, go to the one that you use and find Stereo Embers, the podcast on that service. Subscribe, rate, and review, and tell every single terrestrial person that you know or extraterrestrial person we like a big audience. I think that's all the businessy stuff I have for you today. Let's close the show with a longer listen to High on the Weekend. From Philip Stevenson's marvelous new album, A Complete History of Dreams, which I am crazy about. Enjoy it, and thank you as always. By the way, you must be super ripped. If you were working out and you were listening to this, you're looking in the mirror right now going, Whoa, this podcast was better than steroids. Uh, Here we go. Philip Stevenson, high for the weekend. I think I just said high on the weekend. Before, I meant for the weekend. Being high on the weekend, being high for the weekend— Two very different things. Uh, Perhaps there's a PhD thesis in there, but I wouldn't recommend it. High for the Weekend by Philip Stevenson from his fabulous new album. Thank you, as always, for listening to our program. And I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast, only right here on Bombshell Radio.
1: You won't last too long. What you know. What you know. What you know. Got to be cool with what you know, what you know, what you know. I've all of me and I'm coming back down. All the roses are But you gotta cool with what you know With what you know With what you know